Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Clinton. And welcome to our 18th episode of the Not A Cast entitled The Cat, The Mockingbird, The Spider, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Catelyn 4, in which Catelyn Stark shows up in King's Landing and immediately wanders into the conspiracies of Littlefinger and Varys. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Yes, indeed. Thank you kindly. And as we say in all of our podcasts, our spoiler warning, it is for all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So, as a quick reminder for those of you who are listening along with us, for our Patreon, our episode, Why is the Winds of Winter Taking So Goddamn Long?, is available for our $5 or more a month patrons. And today, we're pleased to announce our next Patreon-only episode entitled, A Burning Crown, The End Game of Stannis Baratheon, which will be coming your way on June 28th for, again, all of our $5 and above patrons, and a few days early for all of our $30 and $20 patrons. So, if that entices some of you to come join our Patreon, we'd love to have you along for the ride. And there's lots of other benefits to our Patreon beyond exclusive episodes, like early access to episodes, show notes, personalized thank yous from Emma to me, and a few forthcoming benefits as well. If you have been listening to the podcast so far, or if you follow us on Twitter, you know we take any excuse to talk about the one true king. <laughs> so we'll hope that getting it all out at once will, you know, cure us of that affliction, but in honesty, that's probably unlikely. It's not. Really, really, we just want to get some stands talk done before we actually get to the man in the Clash of Kings, in which case we will we will talk your ears off about him. But uh, as uh, Jeff said, there's a few forthcoming benefits on the Patreon as well. Uh, we're happy to announce that if we uh, reach a stretch goal of $3,000 a month on the Patreon, we are currently, as of this recording, at uh, $1,742 a month. If we get to $3,000 a month, we will record once a quarter a live stream podcast for our, our Patreon supporters. Uh, do, a, do a live episode on one of our chapters, probably do a bunch of questions and answer sessions, um, and uh, have a great time. We'll be doing that probably, you know, like I said, once a quarter, but we can adjust as we go. So if we get to $3,000 a month, we will be happy to bring that to you guys. Yes. And so one of the ideas that we've been kind of tossing back and forth between ourselves is that we would probably, we, well, we'll see when, when we'll actually record this and if and when that occurs. We don't think it's going to be occurring immediately. And we do appreciate everyone who has been uh, contributing to us and, and helping us out. But we don't think it'll probably be immediately. So we'll let you guys know more like the, the schedule and things like that. But as sort of a, a teaser, one of the things we talked about is doing kind of a live 30-minute Q&A session before the start of the episode in which we'll answer your guys' questions, stuff that won't necessarily be on the podcast proper. And then we'll go in and actually do a live podcast and get your guys' live feedback and questions as we're going through through as well. So kind of think of it more like general Q&A at the beginning, and then more specific Q&A from you guys as we're going through the episode, uh, whatever that's going to be. Again, we don't think it'll be immediately coming out, but we are really looking forward to doing this with you guys and think it'll be a fun opportunity for you all to interact with us in a setting beyond social media. So we'll, we will look forward to potentially interacting with you guys on YouTube here in the next few months. And we, again, thank everyone for your contributions. And a special shout out and thanks to Frank B., who was the one who suggested we do this Stannis episode. Uh, we got really excited when we heard you talking about it and suggesting it, and we decided to go through with it. So thanks, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, we do. And again, that's patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Yes, indeed. And uh, speaking of our patrons, we have some uh, questions from them. Uh, Sir Darren of Detroit asks, 
quote, a recent sworn sword here, was holding out on becoming a patron, but I couldn't resist the Winds of Winter episode discussion. <laughs> My question is, do you think you guys will do a Dane episode? There seems like there was so much mystery around this one house, but with Ashara, is she Lamore? Did she actually throw herself from a tower? Wasn't in love with her? Edric, Beric, or Gary? Uh, what's his role in the Winds of Winter slash A Dream of Spring? And Arthur, to say the least. This is an ancient house that has done little throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Or has it? Also, where the heck is Dawn? Love your show, once again, Sir Darren of Detroit. Uh, thank you so much for the question, and what do you think, Jeff? Well, that's a, there's, a, there's a couple questions in there, so I'll do the easy ones first. Is Lamora Chardin? No. Good answer. Did, Moving on. Did, did she throw herself from a tower? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, we have a uh, mutual friend of ours who we've cited, I think, in almost every podcast episode. Um, that is at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, or aka Chloe, who is going to be delving into that. And I don't want to spoil some of the great research that she's been putting into some of these questions. Um, but was Ned in love with her? So we did, I think we did cover this in a previous episode. I don't remember off the top of my head which episode it was. I, I think it was, was it Catlin 2 that we did it? Because it was, uh, they brought the RJ stuff. I believe yeah. it was. We, we should really know our own podcast. But yeah, I think, <laughs> we it was, should. I think it was something like that. And I think we came to the conclusion that Ned probably was in love with her. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I still think so, judging from his attitude and the way Harwin talks about it in A Storm of Swords to Arya. I think so. Yeah, agreed. And what is going to be all of their roles in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring? Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick that one over to you because I've, I've answered three questions in a row. You can answer that one. Sure. Well, I think uh, the primary change to the story that came from abandoning the five-year gap that was supposed to exist between A Storm of Swords and the books that followed, the, the characters that felt that impact most were, of course, the young Starks, Arya, Sansa, and Bran, given that the five-year gap was, as an idea, mostly in service of them. Mm-hmm. However, I would say besides them the narrative element most affected by the abandonment of the five-year gap was House Dane. Yes. I think if, and I think you can tell that mostly by looking at the transparent patch job that is House Dane as it exists in A Feast for Crows. <laughs> I love A Feast for Crows. I love the Dornish plot. I think both the book yes. and that plot within are tremendously underrated and just under-analyzed as a whole. Yes. Uh, but, and I do appreciate Dark Star in a way that Martin did not intend as a kind of like <laughs> overcomp, overcompensatory Lego Batman Darkwing Duck kind of villain. But Dark Star's <laughs> existence and the whole in the hunt for him that is being set up in Dance with Dragons and the beginning of The Winds of Winter, that is a, a very uh, transparent workaround for I think what was supposed to be House Dane's larger role. That smacks so much of the author going, My earlier plans were scuttled. How do I get a POV to House Dane? I'll yes. just I'll, I'll I'll have this guard guy in Dorn be a POV, and I'll get him there. It just it feels very much like he's working backwards from a conclusion, which of course a lot of writing is, but you're usually supposed to disguise it better than that. Mm-hmm. And I think just because of the amount of changes Martin was making at once after the five year gap and collapse, and trying to get a feast for crows into some form for publication, I think he settled on a plot line that seems very undeveloped compared to his other plot lines. Even the even the other stuff in Dorn, clearly Duran and Ariane Martell are characters he cares about and has invested a great deal in. The Dark Star Hunt feels tacked on to me, which in and of itself suggests that maybe uh, Edric Dane, who is introduced in the Storm of Swords in Arya's chapters, but then completely drops out of the narrative, was supposed to have a larger role. Maybe he was supposed to not only break off from Lady Stoneheart 
when she becomes the leader of the Brotherhood, but actively do something else on his own, instead of, yes. again, vanishing for the entirety of Feast and Dance. Maybe he was supposed to wield Dawn, or maybe he was supposed to be the vector of larger hidden truths about R plus L equals J, like he kind of is in the Storm of Swords. Because, I mean, that is how Stane's primary role, as far as we can tell, in the narrative, is to act as part of the smokescreen, part of the, the misdirect with the backstory surrounding John and Rhaegar and mm-hmm. Lyanna. They're there to help Ned cover, both in-universe from other people and also from the audience, what really right. happened with John. That's their, I think that's their primary job. What they were supposed to do in the later books, I think, is connected to the mystical plot that Rhaegar and John are wrapped up in, probably involving mm-hmm. the Sword Dawn, but I think we are now seeing, unfortunately, a bastardized version of that. Yeah, I would agree that it's that Edric Dane was originally going to have a larger plot purpose in A Feast for Crows or A Dance with Dragons, and then it just did not necessarily work out because he's only a 12 or 13-year-old kid by the end of A Storm of Swords. He would have been 17, 18 years old had the five-year gap worked out, and he would have been the perfect age to be a young proto-Arthur Dane, for instance. Um, I do think... So one of the other questions is, where the heck is Dawn? One of the things I've wondered about is whether the Dark Star hunt is going to end at the Castle of Starfall, in which you have all of these different characters, Aryohota, Obara Sand, Dark Star, and Sir Balan Swan, all kind of in, have, have different... They have different um, motivations and they have different uh, seemingly plot purposes. They're, they're cross purposes in terms of, the, of what they want to do. And it's possible that you might have a big conflagration at Starfall as Darkstar potentially tries to seize Dawn. And you have these different characters who may not want Darkstar to seize Dawn. So you have the potential for a big showdown out there. I think I've called it like the Dornish standoff, I think is what you might see in the Winds of Winter of... Darkstar, Obara, Balon, and Ario all kind of fighting against each other, potentially, because none of them are really allies. Even though you have the three characters, Balon, Ario, and Obara, heading out together, Obara wants to burn um, burn Old Town to the ground, Balon wants to murder um, the young Tristane Martell, and Ario is just a, a, a watcher and protector. And he also thinks in his Dance with Dragons, his single Dance with Dragons chapter, that he imagines himself fighting up against Balon Swan in the future, thinking that he's going to be a more difficult challenge than Sir Ares Okart. So I think that's going to be, I think that definitely foreshadows a potential uh, battle or fight between the two of them at the very least. I agree. When I say that the Dark Star Hunt feels underdeveloped, I don't mean to suggest there's no drama there. I agree. It's interesting you have all these characters at cross purposes with different reasons for being there. I think it's very likely that Hoda is going to turn on Balin Swan, and I think, I expect he'll probably win, but I think he'll have a di- more difficult time than with Eris Okard, because uh, Balin Swan seems like a badass from what we can tell. Yes. Uh, what, I meant, what I meant more is that this I feel like this plot was supposed to have some more grandeur and have some more important characters connected to it. I feel like John was supposed to be maybe directly involved when we first got the Starfall. Maybe Arya was supposed to be wrapped into it somehow. Uh, and maybe, or at the very least, Edric Dane was going to be the one spearheading it instead of this kind of cartoon that Martin came up with for <laughs> A Feast for Crows named Darkstar. Um, so it's, seeing Starfall will be worth any any cost of getting there. It's It's been, the way it's been described, the way it's been built up, I'm sure uh, Martin will bring, bring his A-game in terms of world building and imagery. If we do get there, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that could be uh, beautiful. 
But it is it is going to be a step down, I think, from it could have been. I am I am looking forward to seeing Dark Star die horribly, but uh, I think I think it would have been, I think it would have been more interesting if Edric Dane had stuck around, had five years to kind of develop himself, and uh, I get the feeling he was almost supposed to be like a version of of Gendry or Edric Storm, like the, yeah. the, the 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 younger son of this other allied house. That spends time off stage and then comes back and is 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 really important. But you, you need the five year gap to make that credible for him. Agreed. Even just even just physically, because I'm thinking back about Edric Dane. I just remember him complaining about the rain and being skinny. <laughs> like that's what I remember of him. So him lifting Dawn doesn't seem quite credible. So no. Yeah. Well, I have so there, there's there's an alternate theory that uh, Darkstar might not meet a grisly end in the Winds of Winter that he might become one of Aegon's Kingsguard as kind of this pale shadow of trying to enshrine himself with kind of the Rhaegar uh, optics that he that John Connington and Varys really seemingly want Aegon to be and having a Dane in his Kingsguard will be people will be like ah yes a Dane just like Sir Arthur Dane who was in Eris's Kingsguard back in the day and was Rhaegar's best friend, according to several characters in the in the in the books. I could see that happening too. Although again, if Ariane is in the in the mix, I would kind of think that maybe Ariane would be like, no, we definitely don't want this dude in our ranks. Like kill him immediately, sort of thing. Um, which would kind of be a funny way to end Dark Stars that <laughs> Susie shows up to Aegon, you know, in his beautiful, wonderful armor bearing the sword Dawn, that Ariane's like, kill this guy kill this motherfucker right now and then that's it dark star dies right there and ignominiously by the golden company or something to that effect i don't i don't i actually it is it, it is something that i've definitely thought a lot about but i don't have a lot of clear ideas about where martin is going to take the dornish plotline or the dornish plotline set in dorn i've got pretty clear ideas what's going to happen with ariane um but yeah the the danes and dark star I could see it going a number of different ways but i, I am i am interested I, I do agree that it would have been better with a aged up um, Edric Dane, um, but I'm I'm okay with Darkstar, and I guess we'll have to see what Martin brings with uh, with uh, Darkstar. But the uh, the the first question they start off with is, do you guys think that we'll do a Dane episode? And I would say, yeah, absolutely, we would love to do a Dane episode. Probably one of our Patreon special episodes. Probably not one in the next few months, but somewhere down the road, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to delve deep into the Danes, and we would. Uh, and yeah, we would we would love to do a Dane episode for sure. Yeah, we'll have to bring on Chloe if we do so. Again, if you haven't checked yes. out her stuff, at Lysenaber on Twitter. She's also half of Girls Gone Canon, an excellent podcast going through Ned's chapters right now. And I'm not revealing anything about where they're going to next. <laughs> so that's at Lysenaber and at Girls Gone Canon. And now I'm shutting up. What's the next question, Jeff? <laughs> so the next question comes from our uh, really good friend, our Northern Irish friend, Old Sadie, who asks, I'm going to the Game of Thrones live concert this week. And this, this question was actually asked a few weeks ago. So Sadie, if you have the chance, let us know how the concert was. She continues, and I was wondering if there were any parts of the show's soundtrack that you really enjoy and why. Hmm. I like this question. As do I. That's a good one. I mean, the music has always been consistently one of the best things about the show, at least for me. Uh, you know, there's a great melodramatic job of associating each character with the kind of emotions you're supposed to feel about them, which is a really useful job for a, a score on a big ensemble show like this. Yeah. Where you're expecting the casual audience to give up and who everybody is. The score cues you in. And uh, on that count, I really enjoy the Stannis' theme. I don't know what the actual title of the piece of music is. It's probably Team Dragonstone or some such. It's called probably Warrior of Light. Warrior of Light, yeah. All right. 
well, that's perfectly appropriate. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just this very kind of somber, m- mysterious, sinister piece. I don't like what the show did with Stannis on the whole, but I feel like they captured what Dragonstone as a setting and location is supposed to feel like, that kind of grim foreboding and gloom. And that uh, that that piece of music always captured that perfectly, I thought. Yeah, I, I really love the uh, what they did with Stannis as well. And there's the, the the one that they use, they use the Warrior of the Light as the base, but a Ramin Jawadi who does the, the music for Game of Thrones and also for Westworld and a couple of other shows, um, he did a, a really haunting, haunting piece. I believe it's called Dance of the Dragons, where it was it was centered around the death of Shireen Baratheon. And it, he used that Warrior of Light piece as the basis to build this really swelling, horrifying uh, set, set of music that just really captures, it, it enhances the horror that I definitely felt during the, that scene from season five, episode nine. And it's a uh, it's a great piece uh, for me. I I love the music from Game of Thrones. I love the music from Game of Thrones. So I have to kind of like restrict myself a little bit because there's there's so many pieces that I like. But I'll talk uh, about three pieces that I like the most. Um, I love the Stark theme. It starts out in season one soundtrack. The uh, the song is called uh, Goodbye Brother, and it's a terrific piece that just centers itself around the um, uh, the Stark theme. It's a very sad. Uh, slower theme with string instruments kind of work doing most of the work in it. And um, I love it too, because it's, I think it really captures how Stark really well. And it captures, especially the game of Thrones plot line that how Stark goes through, because they go through a whole lot of terrible things in, well, throughout all five books, but especially in the first book, first, first three books, really. Um, So I I like that a whole lot. Um, The second piece I'd like to highlight is one called the King's Arrival. It is a track, again, that starts in season one, but you hear echoes of it throughout. And just as a little sidebar for this, I was really hoping in season four that they would use this track to announce the arrival of of King Stannis arriving at the Wall. Uh, Instead, they used the Warrior of Light theme music, which again is great, uh, but I thought it would have been a nice touch to kind of signify a narrative shift to have Stannis arriving at the Wall. And maybe this guy who's been built up as a villain in the first three seasons of the show is actually a pretty good dude and not a really pretty good dude in, in the show, but is a has is more complex than he's led on to be. So I thought it would have been really fun if you had that kind of swelling as just Stannis' knights are going apeshit all over the wildlings at the Battle of the Wall. I thought that would have been a cool kind of piece for that. Uh, and then the final uh, piece I'll highlight is, is not going to be super controversial, but is um, uh Light of the Seven from uh, season six of Game of Thrones, I thought was a, is, and I continue to believe is a beautiful, haunting, terrific piece that uses um, a piano at first that just kind of slowly builds up and builds and builds and builds as you're seeing the scene at Baylor Sept where eventually it, it results in the explosion that kills all the Tyrells and the Faith Militant and everyone. Uh, but the, the soundtrack is just phenomenal for that. And it's something I definitely have on a couple different Spotify uh, playlists, a couple like walking ones. I've got it on like a, a running one too and things like that. Cause I always find it very, um, it kind of tunes my brain very, it, it focuses my brain. I think when I'm doing some of these, these tasks and I really enjoy that. So I, I love all the music from game of Thrones. There's a few that don't necessarily hit so, so well, but I won't, um, but I think they're really good. Even if they're not hitting all the notes that I thought they would, 
again, I could talk for hours about all of the music that's in Game of Thrones, and I love it. I think Ramin Jawadi does a fantastic job in crafting the music around the show. Well said, sir. Agreed. And yeah, that is a lovely image of Stannis arriving uh, at the wall, uh, to the king's arrival music. But one of many things that will never be, would simply have to climb. <sighs> As is our job, staring out the window of Dragonstone onto the ghosts moving on the southern sea. So, yeah, tis, tis, our, tis our duty, sir, and we must do our duty. Great or small, we must do our duty. So, those were our questions for this week, and we appreciate you guys. So, appreciate you, Sir Darren of Detroit and Old Sadie. And uh, hope that you guys uh, keep listening. And uh, for uh, again, for those of you who are interested, for our $10 and above patrons, you have the ability to ask us questions, and we will answer them on the show. Yes, indeed, sir. Uh, like Jeff said, we appreciate all your questions, and we'll uh, keep doing them with you every week. Thank you for sending them in. Yeah, absolutely. So now as we transition to a Game of Thrones Catelyn 4, again, be aware of our spoiler warning. We'll be talking about all the different books in it as well. And this is a Game of Thrones Catelyn 4. Lady Catelyn Stark and Sir Roderick Cassell near King's Landing aboard the ship the Storm Dancer. They've been brought south by a Tyroshi captain by the name of Morio, and it's been a difficult journey south from White Harbor, especially for Sir Roderick, who'd been seasick throughout the entire journey. You see... Roderick grew so seasick that he fouled his famous great white whiskers, so the old knight shaved them off. Very, very sad. Catelyn promises Morio that each oarman of the crew will have a silver from her, and then Catelyn and Roderick discuss the plan when the captain departs. They are to go to the Red Keep's Master of Arms, Sir Aaron Santigar, to show him the blade that nearly ended Bran's life, and then ask Sir Aaron about the knife's origins. However, there are dangers. There are certain individuals who know who Catelyn Stark is. Chief among them is Peter Littlefinger Baelish. You see... Baelish was a ward of Riverrun and had even been given the moniker Littlefinger by Catelyn's brother Edbir. Unfortunately for the boy, he'd grown fond of Catelyn, so fond that he dueled Brandon Stark for Cat's hand in marriage in their youths. Brandon gravely wounded Baelish, giving him a scar, and was only and it was only because Catelyn begged for Littlefinger's life that the boy still lives. And now Littlefinger sits the small council as master of coin. I knew he would rise high. He was always clever, even as a boy, but it is one thing to be clever and another to be wise. I wonder what the years have done to him, Catelyn wonders. King's Landing then comes into view and Cat reflects on the history of the city, how it was only forest and fisher folk here before Aegon the Conqueror sailed from Dragonstone. Nearly 300 years later, the city is immense, with manses, arbors, granaries, brick storehouses, timbered inns, merchant stalls, taverns, graveyards, and brothels, all piled atop each other into Catelyn's eye. Between all of these buildings, broad roads, crook back streets, and narrow alleys crisscross across the city. Above them, the Great Sept of Baelor, the headquarters of the Faith of the Seven, and then the ruins of the Dragon Pit, a reminder of when dragons and the dragons ruled Westeros. And above even both of those structures, the Red Keep atop Aegon's High Hill. They sail into the harbor, and then Roderick announces to Catelyn that he has a plan. Without his whiskers, he can travel through King's Landing incognito and meet with Aaron Santigar in secrecy, while Catelyn stays safe back at wherever they decide to stay at. Just then, Captain Morio appears, offering assistance to recommending inns and carrying their chest to whatever establishment they choose. And about the payment that Catelyn offered, would it be alright if Morio just, you know, kind of held onto the silver for his crewmen? They'd only spend it on sex workers and booze if Cat gave it directly to them. Uh, no. Nice try, Morio. Catelyn will pay each man herself. The pair head up to one of the inns that Morio suggests. Roderick heads out for Santigar while Catelyn gets some well-needed rest. She passes out only to wake up to a hammering at the door gold cloaks, demanding entry in the name of the king. Cat lets the men in. She asks under whose authority they are barging in on her, and they show her a mockingbird sigil. 
Littlefinger. How the hell did Littlefinger know she was there? And then she realizes, Morio. He knew who they were and where they were going, and there was a little matter of not giving him all of the silver to steal, er, uh, distribute to his crew. Anyways, Catelyn asks the guards if they know who she is. They don't. They just had instructions to bring some noble lady to Littlefinger. So they all depart the inn for the Red Keep. They enter the castle at nightfall. She's escorted through a narrow door, up the steps of a tower, and finally she's in front of Lord Littlefinger. Cat, he says. Why have I been brought here in this fashion, she replies. A valid question, and one that Littlefinger sidesteps, asking after her treatment by his guards, and then asking after her hands. Catelyn again chastises Littlefinger for her being brought to him in this fashion. Littlefinger again sidesteps, looking contrite, stating that it was never his intent to anger Catelyn. This was a routine Catelyn was familiar with from her time as a girl growing up in Riverrun, so she's unsure whether he's truly contrite or not. Spoilers, he's not. Cat asks how Littlefinger knew she was in the city. Varys knows all, Baelish responds. Nothing happens without Varys' know about it, sometimes even before it happens. He has informants everywhere, little birds. But while Varys knew about Catelyn's visit, he doesn't know one thing. Why she's here. A wife is allowed to yearn for her husband, and if a mother needs her daughter's close, who can tell her no? Littlefinger laughs and doesn't believe her, asking Catelyn to recite the Tully words. Family, duty, honor, she says dryly. Yes, indeed, and that would compel you to come to King's Landing and in a hurry, wouldn't it, Catelyn? Anyways, this is all interrupted when Lord Varys arrives, smelling of lilacs and issuing effusive flatteries to Catelyn. He offers to send for a sow for her hands and to purchase healers in the free cities for Bran. Catelyn declines both. Varys then claims that he esteems Ned and loves Robert. Littlefinger jokes that no one is so beloved as Robert, at least in Lord Varys' hearing. After all of these flatteries, everyone gets down to business. Varys asks Catelyn to see the dagger. Catelyn is amazed that Varys knows about the dagger. She asks what became of Sir Roderick. Littlefinger doesn't really know anything about Roderick. Varys responds that Roderick met with Sir Aaron Santigar, where they spoke of the dagger. Again, Catelyn is amazed at Varys' knowledge, calling him a quote-unquote wizard. And then she produces the dagger for Varys' examination. Varys lifts the dagger, examines it, runs his thumb across the blade, cutting himself in the process. Littlefinger then takes the dagger and begins flipping it with his hands and guesses at the Catelyn's purpose in coming here. You want to find the owner. That is the reason for, your, for this visit. And if Catelyn had, I would have told you that there was only one knife like this in all of King's Landing. It's mine, Littlefinger says, throwing the dagger against the wooden door. Yours? Catelyn asks, remembering that Littlefinger wasn't at Winterfell. Yes. It was Littlefinger's dagger until he lost on Prince Joffrey's name day tourney. There, he bet his dagger on Sir Jamie Lannister, but when Sir Loras Sorrell unhorsed Jamie in the tilt, he lost the dagger to the man who had bet against him. Who? Catelyn demanded, her mouth dry with fear, her fears ached with remembered pain. The imp, said Littlefinger as Lord Varys watched her face. Tyrion Lannister. And that is A Game of Thrones, Catelyn Four. One of those chapters that just kind of really sticks out to you as being extremely consequential to the plot of the story, especially the political plot of the story, for sure. Yes, indeed, sir. Well put throughout. Thanks. And if, uh, if, if Bram 3 was our deepest dive last week into the magical side of the Song of Ice and Fire so far, Catalan 4 plays the equivalent role in the political world. It's not only our first chapter in King's Landing, but our introduction to the two characters who arguably embody the capital's politics more than anyone else. Uh, Littlefinger and Varys, the masters of coins and whispers, respectively. Plot-wise, as we'll get into a little bit later, this is where the dominoes start falling faster and faster towards the War of Five Kings. But what really makes this chapter great for me is how it introduces us to the city. 
Yes. I love I love that our first chapter set in King's Landing isn't Edward Ford. You know, arriving through the front door, attending the first of many small council meetings, exploring the public face of power. And there's nothing against that chapter, and Ned does kind of stumble into intrigue by its end. But uh, Catelyn Four is a much more appropriate introduction, I think. She, she arrives mm-hmm. in secret, immediately gets found out, is marched through the back door, and has to delicately dance her way through this conversation, which everyone is playing a separate game. Mm-hmm. Things move so quickly, as you can see in the way you outlined uh, the events there. Things move so quickly once Littlefinger sends for Catelyn that we're constantly playing catch up throughout the chapter. Yeah, and by the time yeah, and by the time you get done the first time through, it's it's impossible to know who or what to believe. And I, I think that's the best manner possible by which to get to know King's Landing because that's what it's like here, right? Yeah. I mean, Martin's Martin's not just introducing the capital; he's introducing the tone and themes he's going to be exploring here throughout the series. He wants to let you know right away how King's Landing feels, and what it feels like is the ground shifting underneath your feet and the vipers waiting for you below. This is where Egan landed, but but where will you land? It's a great question. It's one that Catelyn is going to be grappling with in this chapter and then in Ned's next chapter when he arrives in, in King's Landing. Uh, one of the things you, you brought up is something that is really fascinating for me is that in terms of like the structure and the writing of this chapter, Martin sheds a lot of pages describing what King's Landing is like. And like, we're talking like, in terms of my Kindle, we talked last week from brand three, how it was only eight pages on my Kindle or nine pages. I can't remember which one it was, but in this chapter, it's like 22 pages on, on my Kindle. Like it's, it's a, it's a hefty, hefty chapter, but of those 22 ish pages, 15 of them are describing what happens and what Catelyn is seeing as she's approaching the city. And then, like you said, everything moves at a rapid pace as soon as Littlefinger and Varys come into the picture. Like, it, we're talking, like, things progress plot-wise very quickly, but you're also talking about how different events are transpiring very, very quickly as well. It's a not a rushed feel, for sure. It's more of, like, that the intensity of what is happening in King's Landing is going to be picking up and how you can have this beautiful, immense... Um, complicated city and then you have these beautiful immense and complicated people that Catelyn is going to be interacting with here at the end and it's uh, it's great I, I think this is one of those chapters that I really enjoy a lot because I really gravitate primarily to the politics of A Song of Ice and Fire and this chapter is just chock full of those politics for sure and it's very that po- those politics though are not necessarily grounded in stark honor or Tully family duty honor they're grounded in kind. They're kind of transactional more than anything else, right? Yeah, I mean, it struck me when you were reading the summary that this the ship is called the Storm Dancer, which of course is perfectly in line with Brand's vision of Catelyn and Sir Roderick sailing, sailing into a storm and not realizing it. And this yes. ship is the is the that which they are dancing upon it. But to to dance in this storm, yeah, you have to play by the rules, and and the rules in King's Landing are. Very transactional. It's very it's very cash based. Everyone's palm gets gets greased. And yeah, what I love what I love about this chapter is that it's 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 fun. Like it's it's intriguing. Yeah. Like you're you're captured by it. It's not just Martin dryly introducing you to these characters and saying, "Here's Littlefinger. He's the master of coin. This is what his <laughs> job is." It's like it's taking you into how their world and how they operate with with each other. Uh-huh. Uh, which is immediately gets you a much stronger feel for for how King's Landing works, and like it's a, 
Now, this is something I'm going to get much into more when we get to Clash of Kings and Tyrion's chapters here, and that, that it feels very much like a Scorsese movie, very much like something like Goodfellas <laughs> or Casino, where you have this voiceover constantly telling you the rules of a system as you watch the camera kind of swoop in and around it and watch everyone. He bribes him, and then he watches her, and then you go over here, and then you do this, and then we move, you know, it's King's yeah. Landing has that kind of that dizzying speed, that sense of every, everyone has to move very quickly to keep track of what's going on here. And uh, and it's it's all it's all based on cash. I mean, you were bringing up uh, Captain Morio throughout your summary there, and that yes. immediate I love that immediately sets the tone. These silver stags, they bring it up right at the start of the chapter. Uh, Catelyn says, "Your oarmen have done well by his captain. Each one of them shall have a silver stag as a token of my gratitude." Uh, and then yeah, he starts trying to. He says at first he says it's too much, and then he wants to get it away from her for his own. His own devices, and supplied, as you said, that Catalan realizes he's not actually going to give it to the crew. So right away we get the sense of how things work around here, that it's all about the flow of money and information, and how you can kind of insert yourself into those process. You know, I like, I like that it's, you know, Varus picks, picks up this information, and then he goes to Littlefinger with it, and that's a crucial decision. And then Littlefinger has to decide what to do with that information. And it's like, it's, it's a game of hot potato with this fact that Catalan Stark is in town. And it's, yes. it's, 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 you know, it's uh, cloak and daggers, and it's skullduggery in back rooms, and it's, yeah, it's it's everything you like about, about politics in this story. Yeah, it really is. And it brings, like, those two characters that I, I think are the most fascinating characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that is Varys and Littlefinger, very strongly to the forefront here. And I think it's interesting to watch how they're interacting with someone like Catelyn Stark, because she is very different from the people that they're normally interacting with. When you have someone like Robert, who is essentially negligent in his role and doesn't really care, so kind of anything goes. Yeah, so it, it really kind of brings these two characters that I love the most in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, Vars and Littlefinger here, and it's really interesting to watch them interact with someone like Catelyn Stark, who is a very family duty, honor, focus about her. She's very much the embodiment of the House Tully words, and I, I love that they're... You can almost sense that Varys is tempting to kind of feel her out a little bit and trying to use flattery and use these different methods that he's probably able to use well and has used well in the past to keep himself alive. Because Varys is at the end of again of, at the end of Robert's Rebellion, Varys was in probably the most tenuous was probably in the most tenuous position of all of the former counselors to Aerys Targaryen, and that he was the master of whispers, and he had to make himself indispensable to King Robert. And to John Aaron, I'm assuming as well. But you have folks like uh, Sir Barristan and uh, and Stannis Baratheon who talk about how the rotten King's Landing started with Varys, um, the rotten Aerys's reign started with Varys, and Stannis saying that he wishes that he could just scour the court clean, and he thinks about Varys as he's saying that. I think it's a really cool way of putting it. But Catelyn is Catelyn is kind of amazed by Varys. It's really interesting how she keeps referring to him as a wizard. And how Varys has these methods and means that the average common person doesn't understand. Like he talks about the the whispers of little birds and different things like that. But it's as we find out throughout the story, it's it's a bit not it's a bit not as magical as as he makes himself out to be. He makes himself out to be much more of a figure of intrigue and mystery than he actually is in real life. And kind of the same way the little finger does as well in this chapter for sure. Absolutely. Varys benefits from you thinking he's magical and not poking too much into the details about how he does what he does. 
Uh, a parallel that struck me while reading this chapter, specifically the scene where Catelyn tr is trying to figure out how she was found out, reminds me very much of Davos' return to Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords and what happens to him there. He immediately gets found out and thrown in jail by Melisandre's men, and he assumes that Salador San uh, betrayed him over right. to Melisandre, and then Melisandre tells him that's not the case. I saw your purpose in my fires. I always look for danger to me first when I look into my fires, and so I saw you coming for me. And that's interesting because that's a case of actual magic being done to uh, as, as intelligence work uh, to keep tabs on your enemies and what they're up to. But in Varus's case, uh, it's, it's much more mundane. He had little birds listening in. That's how he got the drop on Catelyn. It's different from how Melisandre got the drop on, on Davos. And yes. how ironic is it that the man who hates magic above all else and tells Tyrion about how he blames wizardry for castrating him and how he's resisting Stannis on that basis... How ironic is it that he is the one being called a sorcerer and a wizard, and that that's his public reputation? That fits like the public face, private face yes. uh, divide with Varus so well. Yeah, it really does. It really does. But yeah, I liked what you were saying about how they handle Catelyn Stark being the immediate question they have to deal with, because it's interesting. I like that Catelyn re susses out Captain Morio and realizes that if she gives the silver to him, the men are never going to see it, and that she's got to pass it to them herself. I like that because it... It emphasizes that what makes Catelyn dangerous is that she has resources. She's walking into King's Landing with mm -hmm. a political, economic, social resource base that Littlefinger and Varys cannot interfere with. Catelyn will call on it again when she gets to the Riverlands, when she, specific, when she wants to arrest Tyrion. She goes around the room. I love that moment. She says, here's your relationship to House Tully. Here's your relationship to my father. Here's your relationship. I'm going to put all those into action right now. Yeah. Catelyn... What makes Catelyn powerful, it's unblunt, but she has silver stags to hand out. Yes. Whereas anyone else wandering into King's Landing doesn't. So she can, if she can do that to Morio's people, who's to say she couldn't do that to Littlefinger's people? If she felt like that, if she didn't trust him, if she was inclined to take apart his organization, you know, Ned and Catelyn come to King's Landing with a, a fair amount of political power to use. The mm -hmm. question is how they use it, as yes. Ned ultimately falls frustratingly short on that count. But it proved that she's someone to deal with, and that she's someone they have to deal with specifically in this financial game. I love that uh, it's in Littlefinger's description. Uh, it, it, it even brings up finance then. Like, it, it's reflected on his physical form. Quote, he had a little pointed chin beard now, and threads of silver in his dark hair, though he was still shy of 30. They went well with the silver mockingbird that fastened his cloak. Even as a child, he had always loved his silver. I love that. That's, like, that's all a Littlefinger right there. Like the Oh, yeah. The, the silver in his hair that is representative of growth and age is associated with his lust for cash. And, he, and, and that's brought back to his childhood. And, how his, and even in his innocent days, he loved silver. Now that's mutated as he's grown into this horrible financial schemer who... I'm sure he used to love silver coins because they were just bright. And they were fancy and fun. <laughs> right. But now he, like, now he knows what they mean. So now it's in his hair. That's a, like, I think that's just great, great character description. And then... And then you, you, you put that in line with the gold cloaks. This is where we get our very first clue that Littlefinger's the one actually in charge of them, because they're the ones he sends to get Catelyn. Interesting. They bring him they bring him straight bring her straight to him. They don't consult no. with Janos Slint. I never caught that before. They don't consult with Cersei. They go right back door up to him. And it's it's perfect symbolism. Gold and silver. Those are Littlefinger's colors. The silver of his beard, the gold of the cloaks, just like coins. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. This 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 is this is his financial world. And uh, as we'll get into as we go, uh, I'm not a I'm not the hugest fan of Littlefinger as a schemer <laughs> or a character. I think Varys is considerably more interesting, but I do love this imagery and symbolism surrounding Littlefinger right from the start. It gets 
lets you know who he is. Cash rules everything around me. That's Littlefinger. He's, he's the financial world embodied. Yes. Which is perfect, because, I mean, the reveal at this chapter's end, the, the fake reveal that it was Tyrion's, ostensibly, who won the dagger, that reveal revolves around what else but a gamble. That's what the big plot function of the story comes down to, is a bet, and that fits Littlefinger perfectly. Yes, it really does. And um, the way I've kind of looked at Littlefinger and Varys is as a um, as poker players. I know this, uh, this sounds weird, so bear with me. Uh, I'm going to learn you something if you don't know some of these things about poker. Um, little thing, So this is going to be a little bit of a metaphor for who these these folks are or a simile. I can't remember which one is which, I guess, a metaphor. Um, <laughs> Whichever one sounds pretentious in the moment. Right, Let's exactly. Metaphor. It makes us sound so good. It's an extremely important metaphor then. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, Jeff, go on. Go on while I stroke my beard. <laughs> So uh, Littlefinger is, has been uh, – Steve Atwell has called Littlefinger a quote-unquote jazz soloist and uh, essentially meaning that he basically innovates music and plots as he's going along. He doesn't have a long-term plan. He just kind of does these kind of solo things on his own without much of a – you know, without a, a music sheet in front of him. Uh, I like to think of Littlefinger as a loose, aggressive poker player that is otherwise known as a maniac on, on the tables. And uh, loose, aggressive players – for those of you who don't know, play a wide range of hands. So think about the most basic form of poker, Texas Hold'em. Um, you would have the best hand would be two aces. And the worst hand would be two seven. But for the loose aggressive player, he's not going to really care what hands he's playing. I mean, he will care a little bit, but he's going to be caring more about um, playing aggressively no matter the strength of his actual hand. And this unbalanced play is really interesting because it keeps opponents guessing about how good of a hand the loose aggressive player has because sometimes he has a really good hand and because he has this reputation of always having bad hands and playing shit hands, uh, he can make a whole lot of money by playing good hands and playing them as aggressively as he does uh, his his worst hands. And it's, uh, it's uh, I tried to play as a loose aggressive player when I played poker early on, probably like <laughs> 10, 10 years ago now, 15 years ago almost. Uh, and I How'd lost that go a lot for of you, buddy? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> Not well. I went to... Uh, I, Quick personal anecdote, I went to Las Vegas when I got back from a deployment to Afghanistan in uh, 2010, and I was like, oh man, I, I know how to play, I'm going to play this this style, and man, I, I lost a lot of money trying to do that. So uh, don't do that if you're just getting started, let's just, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. So, um, but yeah, and you know, that that's funny, because you know, Littlefinger's kind of loose aggressive style, kind of like myself, it got him a lot of pretty bad losses early on. He lost Catelyn in Dueling Brandon. And he got nearly killed by Brandon Stark as well when Catelyn, when rather Brandon cut him from, uh, what is it, what's it the show say it, from collarbone to, to hip or something like that, to hip bone. Like that's how long of a cut it was. Um, but so what Littlefinger does over the years since that fight is that he improves his game. He tightens it a bit, but he's utilizing a lot of imp- improvisation here. Um, because one of the things that's interesting about this chapter is that Littlefinger doesn't know why Catelyn is here. So he somehow comes up with this scheme that Tyrion is behind the dagger on the fly. And that's, I mean, props to him. I mean, I think Littlefinger's a piece of shit and I think I'm looking forward to his death. Not that people should, that I'm looking forward to people dying, but Littlefinger, I think I could safely say it was, has earned his fate when it's coming in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring, wherever that's going to come, come down. I'll make um, you an exception. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, a character like Littlefinger, a character like Tywin, I wasn't sad to see Tywin die in a storm of swords. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so he's using a lot of improvisation here, something that Emmett's going to be talking about very shortly. Um, to talk about Varys a little bit, he kind of reminds me more of a tight aggressive 
that is a player that is known, sometimes known as a rock, which is more like a passive aggressive player, but uh, he's more tight aggressive in that he's constantly hold, trying to hold on to the best timing for a plot to unfold. He's constantly trying to ensure that Aegon and the Golden Company land in Westeros with the best possible conditions set by Varys. And, you know, you have... And, when they make their grand entrance, they're there to quote unquote bind up the bleeding wounds of to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros and Illyrio's parlance. Um, but there's a drawback to Varys' style of play here in that he's really not sure what to make of Littlefinger. You know, we get that really interesting uh, we get that interesting dialogue in Game of Thrones Arya three, where Varys and Illyrio are talking and about Littlefinger, they say, quote, the gods alone know the game that Littlefinger is playing. They just are not sure of who Littlefinger is and what his purpose and his game that he's playing. And that has some drawbacks, especially as we get towards the end of the book, where Littlefinger kind of hits a grand slam, to kind of mix my metaphors a little bit. And uh, and Varys is kind of left holding the bag, kind of as kind of uh, blindsided by what Littlefinger does and that has an impact as, as we're going on. But we'll get to all that in good time. But yeah, I, I just thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. Something I wrote about probably four or five years ago at this point about what I saw in Littlefinger as, as in terms of my own background as a not professional whatsoever poker player, but as a uh, one who in, enjoyed the game and did study, study it a little bit. I like that a lot, buddy. I think it's interesting that Varus and Littlefinger are so well positioned as contrasts that they can there's so many good metaphors you can come up with for them jazz soloist versus concert pianist you know aggressive poker player versus conservative poker player they're so well established with their different kind of techniques and moves yeah. that you can easily easily transpose them like i'm sure you could compare them to athletes too like you know about a, you, you know a different kinds of batter and what kind of pitches they're going to swing at i'm sure there are some little finger could easily be translated to that by someone who knows what they're talking about not me <laughs> but well that that's that's how that. the, Exactly. That's that's how you get a sense of how strong they are as characters, is, is how well you can compare them to all these different art areas of life. That's where you get into the metaphors of them as as artists, you know, and weavers, and and uh, like they, it's almost a creative act that they're doing when they scheme. I'm not, of course, waxing romantic about the people who die horribly along the way, yeah. but I'm saying that we're, we're comparing them to to uh, to card players or to musicians because there, there there does seem to be an art to what they're doing. Yes. Where you can define the character by talking about their different styles. And I agree that Littlefinger I think is more successful over the first few books because Varus is just reacting to what he's doing and Varus is also trying to deal with his Targaryen plan kind of going crazy in Essos at the same time. <laughs> uh, but I think I think you see by the end of Dance that Varus I think has the stronger hand when it comes to the Iron Throne itself because Littlefinger appears to be his, his gaze is, appears to be pointed northward, at least at yes. the moment. And I think, he, who knows, he, he may have taken his eye off the ball as far as the Iron Throne is concerned. We'll see in the Winds of Winter. I'm sure he's got a plan, but I think Varys might have him, might outmatch him for the play of the throne itself, and then immediately lose it to Danny because they're both going down, because that's the point. But, but we'll see on that count. No, I, I totally agree with that. What's interesting to me that I can see at least... When I look at it from the kind of the 10,000 foot side is by the end of A Dance of Dragons, you can see that Varys is consolidating power in Dorne, the Stormlands, the Crownlands, potentially the Reach. The Westerlands are kind of a wild card in, the, in this scenario. But then you have Littlefinger kind of consolidating the Vale, the Riverlands, the North, or, or at least aiming to consolidate these. And that's 
I, I don't know that we're going to get a Littlefinger versus Vara's thing like directly necessarily as we're progressing towards the end game. I feel strongly that their end games are kind of pointed in opposite directions. Uh, Vara's in King's Landing and Littlefinger at Winterfell, I think is primarily where they're, it was where I think their end games are going to lie. But yeah, I, I do think that Vara's is definitely playing a more interesting game. And I think part of the interest for Vara's is that his motivations are so shrouded in mystery until really a dance with dragons that you, it led to a lot of speculations and theories is what Varys was really up to. Whereas Littlefinger, by the end of A Storm of Swords, you knew what Littlefinger was, was up to and what he was into. You might not know all of the permutations of his conspiracies. And as we find out in Feast for Crows, he has a very complex conspiracy to take over the veil, but you have a general idea of what he's into and what he's after in terms of his end game. And maybe we'll do a little finger Vars episode, you know, on our Patreon somewhere down the road as well, as well as that Dane episode. But yeah, I, I, I think there are two fascinating characters. And again, you can use all sorts of metaphors. You can have Vars as the long con and little finger as the, you know, kind of swindler who's kind of making uh, money fist over hand in the immediacy, in the immediacy, whereas Varys has this long scheme to rob the Taj Mahal you know, of fifteen million dollars. You know, if you take the Ocean's Eleven, which I'm not sure they actually robbed the Taj Mahal. I can't remember now. It's been so much long. Close since enough. The movie. Yeah, <laughs> the, those delightful boys robbed all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, I agree. It's interesting. I think they gain more as characters when you put them together. I think that you know they, they you draw a lot of power, law of power from the contrast. And I agree about the motivations. I think Littlefinger's motivation, we already know it, like in this chapter. Catalina yes. just tells it to us. This is what's driving him. Yes. It's, it's We gradually realize over the course of the books how much it's led him to do and how intricate the plan from there has been. But I like that Martin is never hides what is motivating Littlefinger. And yes. It lets you know it completely and lets you have to kind of deal with the characters not knowing about it. Varus is the reverse where you kind of see how he's operating immediately. He's the spy master. He mm-hmm. operates by spying on people. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> Whoa. Here it is. Whoa. Exactly. It's not... Whereas Littlefinger, you find out more and more about his network. Varus's network is kind of clear from the start. Yes. Where It's the reverse, where Varus's motive is the thing that's hidden, and you gradually have to explore and learn more about it. So they're almost inverses in terms of what you know about them from the start and what you have to learn more about them as they go. But, having said all that, I think it's really easy on rereads to fall into presentism with a, with characters like Varus and Littlefinger and just assume that everything we know about them up to this point in the released books has always been in the cards and they were always planning that and that's always how they intended things to go. It's easy to fall into that trap. So I think it's really important as we go through the reread to keep in mind what characters like these, these non-POV, so we don't know what their thoughts are, these very active schemers... It's important to keep in mind what they've already done and what it seems like they're planning on doing at any given moment. So if we take Littlefinger right now, what is his game? What are we looking at here? At this point, he has had Lysa kill John Aaron, and he had her send the letter to Catelyn framing the Lannisters for, for that deed. So he is clearly trying to sow division between the Lannisters on one side and the Starks and Tullys on the other. Now, those sides were always inclined to be antagonistic, but Littlefinger has clearly set out to increase that antagonism and create more discord where before there was before there was none. Yeah. We do not know we do not know for sure. We have not had explicitly confirmed that it was Littlefinger's plan that Robert would then name Ned his new hand, but I think it's fair to assume that that Littlefinger was manipulating these families 
that he wanted Ned brought into an orbit where he could manipulate him further makes sense. Uh, it also makes sense because the other obvious choice for hand is Stannis, and Littlefinger and Stannis hate each other <laughs> a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very unlikely that Littlefinger's plan involved empowering Stannis or even risking empowering Stannis. Because as, if Stannis ever becomes hand, like number three or four on his to-do list is Littlefinger's head on a spike. <laughs> so that's it's that seems unlikely. So I think it's fair to say that Littlefinger intended Ned to be hand. So question. Qu- yeah, go ahead. So question for you. Do you think that Littlefinger was whispering in Robert's ear like, so John Aaron is dead, your grace. Why don't you name your best friend Ned as Hand of the King? He would be a perfect fit. Bring the honorable cold Ned Stark south to enjoy the warmth of King's Landing and to reignite your friendship all over again. Do you think that was in the cards or do you think it was more more uh, ambiguous, more subtle than Littlefinger going directly to the king and saying and asking him to bring Ned south with him and bring, make, make him hand of the king? That's a good question. That gets into how long Littlefinger has been planning this. Like, how much did he decide to do just when he heard Lysa freak out about John sending Sweet Robin away? Like, how, how much was planned then? How much did he have ready before? But yeah, I, I wonder... Part of me thinks, like, all Robert would require is somebody mentioning Ned in passing to just ignite... <laughs> like, And Robert would just go, oh, right, Ned! <laughs> I love right. that guy. Um, and it, it's unclear... Robert and Littlefinger's relationship is unclear... It's unclear how much they ever interacted. It's unclear if Robert liked Littlefinger or thought about him more like Varys as like that distasteful fellow I have to make use of. Right. He does say he loathes counting coppers, but on the other hand, someone like Littlefinger who produces the coppers without much question would be very useful. Mm-hmm. From what we, from what, what I can gather, it seems like Littlefinger mostly interacted with John Aaron. Uh, and that, yes. that was the dynamic, and that Littlefinger didn't really directly go one-on-one with Robert, and that John Aaron was Littlefinger's patron. Which is another reason it's just so wretched despicable that Littlefinger had John Aaron killed, this guy who never did you any wrong and was so good to you. Uh, but that, that's a good question. My guess is maybe Littlefinger mentioned it in passing and hoped that Robert's nostalgia, nostalgia would do the rest. I've got a mini-theory um, for you. What do you think? A very, it's it. a super, super mini-theory, I promise. It'll only be two sentences. I think, it's, on, my friend. I think it's possible that Littlefinger knows that Robert is a frequenter of brothels. Littlefinger owns a lot of the brothels in King's Landing. So maybe he had one of his sex workers say in passing, oh, what became of your friend, Lord Ned Stark, your grace? I hear that you two were amazing friends back in the day, right around the time where he's poisoning John Aaron. So the bird is kind of in his ear without Littlefinger having the, without Littlefinger's fingerprints being on the, uh, on the deed itself. That's an excellent idea, and that fits Robert perfectly because, of course, his frequent prostitution is so frequently associated with his desire to reclaim his virility and youth, something we've talked about with Robert before. So what a more perfect moment to bring up his friend from childhood that he is he misses and is nostalgic for. So that, I could definitely see that. That could well be. And I think, I, I do think Littlefinger was trying to get Ned Dickens Landing. Once Ned gets there... Littlefinger openly antagonizes him, uh, unnecessarily, regarding Catelyn. Like, bringing him to a brothel without explaining what's going on. Like, yeah, of course Ned puts a dagger to your throat at that point. Uh, Again, like, if you're a, you know, if you're a master schemer, unnecessarily tipping your hand is is, is not not, not a great look. And he 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 openly antagonizes Ned, he relishes betraying him, clearly. Mm -hmm. He has that line of, I did warn you not to trust me. He's clearly just loving it. Yes. His mustache-twirling moment. 
And and he almost he abandons uh, Ned when Jamie comes to attack. Although I can't hold him, I can't hold. I don't really hold that against him, but it is it is a clue that Littlefinger's not super loyal to Ned. Really, and I know, right? What gave well, it away? Well, so well, I actually think that Littlefinger was the one that let Jamie know where Ned was. That he was the that's informed. also quite possible. Yeah, I, I think it's not necessarily my idea. I think it was it was a Steve Atwell idea that Littlefinger conveniently is like, oh, I'll, I'll go get I'll go get help from from the Red Keep. You know, as soon as Jamie shows you know, up, so he goes deuces yeah. on Ned. Yeah, immediately when Jamie shows up. Um, I'm not saying that Littlefinger directly interacted with Jamie, but again, sort of the same thing where he influences the uh, someone else to influence Jamie to be like, oh, Ned's over here, and we just heard about Tyrion, and he goes through a cutout. That does make sense. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and then, of course, he almost certainly influences Joffrey in executing Ned. Yes. I'm not going to rehash the evidence for that here, but I think it's very clear that he yes. does that. Agreed. As such, I think it's fair to say that by the time we meet Peter Baelish in this chapter. He is already actively working towards the goal of bringing down a man who has never done him any wrong, simply because that man married Catelyn. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Littlefinger himself would claim, and his fans would claim, that he only really betrayed Ned because Ned was so stubborn about Joffrey versus Stannis, but I think Littlefinger's attitude towards Ned throughout the book, and then having him killed, demonstrate that, that this is not the case, that that's kind of a fig leaf. I personally think, as we'll get into this when we get to Edward 13, I think Littlefinger's argument to Ned about you should back Joffrey and then Renly is designed for Ned to say no to it. Yes, it's I so agree. antithetical to everything mm-hmm. that Ned believes. I think it's Absolutely. deliberate on his on his part. I'm gl- well, I'm glad we agree, good sir. Yeah, that's uh, per, per the norm. <laughs> quite. So I think I think it's important to establish that about Littlefinger right off the bat that he is working towards the goal of bringing down Ned, and Ned has Ned unlike unlike Hoster, unlike Lysa, unlike arguably Brandon, Ned has never done anything wrong to Littlefinger. And yet Littlefinger is specifically setting out to not only bring this man low, but to laugh with glee as he does it. That's that's the kind of tone uh, I, I think is set with Peter Baelish's character. And I think it's important to keep in mind when you kind of sift through the excuses both in-universe and among the fandom for his behavior. I think it's good to keep that in mind right from the get-go, that that's what he's trying to do. Like, yes. Sansa's not in his plans at this point. That doesn't happen until the hands turny. Uh, Heron Hall might not be part of his game as his specific stepping stone to the Eyrie. Who knows if that's part of the plan? Tyrion might put that in his mind in the Clash of Kings. We'll get into that when we get there. But I think it's fair to say that his general plan for houses Aaron, Tully, and Stark are in place before Catelyn walks into the room. Do you think that's fair? I think that's very fair. And I would also... I, I totally agree that Ned has done nothing wrong to Littlefinger, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that Littlefinger doesn't have grievances that he feels are authentic towards Ned because Ned took his Catelyn away from him. You know, after Robert, Oh yeah. After, after, um, after not Robert, but after Brandon dies, we get that mentioned in this chapter that, um, Littlefinger sent a letter to, to Catelyn. Then she never read the letter. And there's been kind of a little bit of discussion about what was in that letter. My personal take is that it was a potential marriage proposal. Like, Oh, now that (laughs) Now that Brandon's gone, you know, I'm still here, you know, buddy, let me know. I'm here for you when you need me sort of thing. So I think that like that when Ned then marries Catelyn, you know, at the start of Robert's Rebellion, that that sets a grievance in Littlefinger's mind for Ned Stark, even though Ned never intended any wrong for Littlefinger. Oh, I agree. That's what Littlefinger thinks about it. That's what's driving him. That's how he justifies it. I just think that's a... 
completely unjust and entitled way to look at it. I mean, oh, I it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of uh, Stannis, and the, of course it does, and the way he talks about <laughs> that's a given. It, well, the conversation he has with Melisandre and Selyse about Edric Storm and how Selyse claims, you know, our marriage bed is cursed because Robert slept with uh, my cousin in our marriage bed, and you know, which was produced Edric Storm. So he he is that cloud. He is he is the curse uh, above our marriage bed. And, and Stannis points out that you know, even if that's true, even if our marriage bed is cursed because of what Robert did, that's not the kid's fault. Yeah, Edric didn't do that. Robert did that, and or you get that great line from Barristan's of "You kill people for the wrongs they have done, not the wrongs they may do someday." So I I I, I agree. And it's worth pointing out that yeah, little thing. What Littlefinger's narrative is is that I got screwed over by these families, and I'm taking my revenge on these families. But that of course reduces Ned to just an avatar, and and just a product of his brother. Who, right. Even Brandon didn't actually do anything wrong to Littlefinger. You know, it happened with Brand, Brandon could have killed him and deliberately didn't on Catelyn's behalf. Right. But yeah, this has been folded into this uh, egregious entitlement narrative on Littlefinger's part, where it's it's not just the legitimate beefs. I think he definitely has with House Tully specifically, Oster and Lysa, but that it's this this all encompassing grandiose plan to bring down these people and cause this harm that have nothing to do with what happened to him and won't change what happened to him. And it, it's not a systemic solution, which is where, where I really lose sympathy for Littlefinger and find more interest in Varys. That yes. I like that Varys has this connection in his head between this was done to me, I'm going to make a world where it doesn't happen to anyone else. I think he's <laughs> doing about it the worst way possible. But I like that as a basis for a character. Littlefinger's... Littlefinger doesn't give a damn about other people who might be in his position. Littlefinger doesn't care about the class structure as a whole. There's no indication that Littlefinger has any, like, you know, desire to raise people up by their bootstraps or any such thing. Like, it's it's pure self-interest. Yes. I, I, I think it's not, that's not clear maybe your first time through this chapter, but I think coming back to it and knowing what he's going to do over the course of this book and reevaluating what he does here in that light, I think it becomes clear. Yeah, totally. And those, and this is a mini, your theory is bad and you're ugly, but those people who think that Littlefinger is some sort of proto-democrat or proto person who wants to bring about a change to the feudal structure in Westeros are smoking crack and you should stop smoking crack and stop being ugly because that is definitely not the case here whatsoever. Like Littlefinger is out for Littlefinger and for his own self-interest that becomes extremely clear, not just in this chapter, but in all of his chapters, like and any chapter that he's featured in, it's clear that he's not working on behalf of the people that he's interacting with, even though he might seem that way. He's working on behalf of Littlefinger and that's his modus operandi, that is who Martin crafted him to be, to be this a supreme self-interested person who is out for his own benefit. And if there are casualties along the way, that's fine. If you have, you know, a, the last poor drunken knight who is your agent and he's no longer any use to you, you kill him. You, like, you, you hit him with crossbow bolts out on the, on the water at the Blackwater Bay. If you have Marillion, you know, a character who's not a good guy whatsoever, but you torture him... All, apparently to his death and you do all these terrible things to him. Lysa, I mean, think about Lysa. Lysa is not a sympathetic character whatsoever in the story. Well, she's a little bit sympathetic. I think you more pity her than sympathize with her, but yeah, Littlefinger uses her. And then when his use of her is done, he pushes her out of the moon door. Like that is, that is essentially who the character of Littlefinger is, is that he uses people to climb his way to the top. You know, you have that famous and great line in my opinion, it was, there is some debate about this, 
from the show, uh, that chaos is a ladder uh, line that Littlefinger says to Varys in season three. And I think that really encapsulates who Littlefinger is, is that he's willing to kill people, have people killed, utilize the feudal structure in order to advance himself. And if there are casualties along the way, that's fine, because the, ultimately it's it's all about Littlefinger, according to Littlefinger, of course. Exactly. And you can tell that Varys feels for people and feels bad about a lot of this. Like the yeah. way he talks to Kevin Lannister, the way he talks to Ned in the Black Cells, the way he talks to Tyrion. You can see a struggle in his mind where he goes, I like these people. I don't want them to die. This feels right. wrong. And that doesn't... The fact that he silences that voice is what ultimately condemns Varys, of course. Yes. And, uh, you know, he he should be sent to the wall at best for the oceans of blood he wades through. <laughs> but it's it's a more interesting question for me with him because he tries to save individuals. Like, you look at Gendry, he gets, Varys gets him out for really what seems like no reason but so that this kid doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And it... You know, I think there's a, there's a dramatic tension there. There's a depthfulness. There's a sense of you know, a question of how far you're willing to go for a worthwhile cause. Right. But with Littlefinger, it's like, ugh, how far is this guy willing to go for himself? Right. Um, and it, in, a, in a way that, like, for me, Varys is interesting as a character if you just break him down. Littlefinger is only interesting because of the execution, because of his plan. Peter Baelish doesn't interest me as a man. His plan interests me in terms of its its ins and outs, its intricacies, how Martin has revealed to us what he's doing. But yeah, his motivation, again, it's it's right here. It's as soon as he's mentioned, Catelyn lays out, he wanted to marry me and he didn't. And that's all you need to know for everything mm-hmm. that follows. He never gets more complicated than that. Nope. The plan gets more complicated than that. But but the man, the man doesn't. He's just, he's just this intricate plan he doesn't, you know, he wants to keep executing. And, you know, as people have noted, Littlefinger seems to get off on the game itself, and maybe that's all there is to him at his core at this point. There's no real, there's no real goal. Uh, in, in in the books, he never brings up like marrying Catelyn after Ned's dead. In the show, he does, but that that never, that's not even mentioned by him as an aside in the books. Really, he's asking for Sansa's hand at that point. Yes, uh, and we'll get we'll get into that more later. But yeah, there's there's an emptiness to Littlefinger, which is, is provocative in its own right, but I think it contrasts with Varys, where you get the sense that there's something there hiding amidst all like the smoke and mirrors. There's something in there worth talking about. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But it's interesting in that Catelyn, when she's thrown into the mix of all of this, she presents history for Littlefinger, but potentially opportunity as well. But she is a... She is a wrench in in the in the gear, so to speak, and and at least at this juncture in the story. Yeah, this is the one thing he never expected. The woman he's been thinking about and idolizing and romanticizing to just walk in and demand to know what's going on. That's like that's a that's a hugely disruptive moment for this for this master manipulator. So I like that we meet him in this moment of discombobulation. Uh, as you said, there's a lot of information flying back and forth, and he's not privy to all of it. Uh, the quote is: "Littlefinger was lost." I feel rather like the knight who arrives at the battle without his lance, which is an interesting foreshadowing for Sir, uh, Sir Dantos. Interesting. Uh, what da- what dagger are we talking about? Who is Sir Roderick? So he doesn't he doesn't really know what's going on in this moment. He doesn't know why Catelyn's here. He knows that she thinks the Lannisters killed Jon Arryn because he arranged that, but he doesn't know about the dagger, the cat's paw, any of that. So her intentions are mysterious at this point. So what does he do about that? He improvises to keep that animosity going that he set up with the letter from Lysa. 
He lies about the dagger in it. Quote, yours? It made no sense. Peter had not been at Winterfell. Until the journey on Prince Joffrey's name day, he said, crossing the room to wrench the dagger from the wood. I backed Sir Jamie in the jousting, along with half the court. Peter's sheepish grin made him look half a boy again. <laughs> when Loras Tyrell unhorsed him, many of us became a trifle poorer. Sir Jamie lost a hundred golden dragons, the queen lost an emerald pendant, and I lost my knife. Her grace got the emerald back, but the winner kept the rest. Uh, a couple things I like about that. One is I like the nice touch of... Again, so much of this chapter is about, like, gambling and bribing and economic influence and palm greasing. And I, I like the the subtle note that when the queen gambles, it's not like quite when other people gamble. Yes. She knows she's going to get it back. She's not really risking losing anything. You peasants might actually lose stuff when you gamble, <laughs> but Cersei's not actually letting anything go. Uh, I, I like that as a nice touch. And I also like Littlefinger's that sheepish grin. And like you mentioned... There's that wonderful little moment in this chapter when Catelyn mentions how he would oh, he was wonderful at looking contrite after being caught. He was so good at that, at, at faking being sorry, which is a great setup for how Littlefinger works and a wonderful note to the audience to not take him seriously when he pretends to look abashed, that he yes. is completely BSing and that he yes. does not feel sorry about any, any of the stuff he's doing. But like I said, he improvises to keep that going. He frames Tyrion, which like you say, I think is a very, uh, very impressively deft touch in the moment when he, again he doesn't know what's happening seconds before and then immediately spins it around to okay here's how I can here's how I can keep my game going here's how I can keep the Lannisters and Starks fighting each other and this of course uh, dominoes out of control from here yeah you're right about that and it's interesting too is that I wonder why Littlefinger settled on Tyrion as the person that he was going to frame why he didn't choose Cersei why he didn't choose Jamie. Um, I, I think, and this is just me kind of speaking extemporaneously, I think potentially it was because Tyrion wasn't in the capital that you had Jamie that was about to arrive in the capital, Cersei, Jamie and Cersei who were both about to arrive back in the capital. So there was a potential maybe that Catelyn could go and question them. Now, it's unclear how much information is getting back to King's Landing. We do know that as we saw in the Sansa One chapter, that Renly and Ser Barristan go up to meet them at Derry, meet the King's party at Derry, but we don't know whether they know that Tyrion is not coming south with them. But it would kind of make sense, right, that they would be aware that Tyrion decided to go north north to the Wall to see the Wall. So he becomes a very interesting and very convenient suspect for Littlefinger to frame here in this moment, and I think it's. I think that's kind of where I've settled at in terms of why Littlefinger chooses Tyrion. It's not out of personal animus from what I could tell at this point, although it becomes so it becomes much more of that after this fact. But it's more because of the convenience of having Tyrion not coming back to King's Landing immediately and not running into Catelyn Stark as uh, here in King's Landing, which of course is going to occur later down the story, which works towards Littlefinger's purposes anyways, but it's a uh, it's definitely a uh, something that I kind of turned back and forth in my mind why he chose Tyrion in this moment to frame. And maybe it's also a little bit too that because of Tyrion's physical disability that he's easy to frame, that people already suspect him of being evil and malicious because he's a dwarf. And maybe there's that he's utilizing that Westerosi conceit that people who are physically disabled are somehow immoral or somehow wrong that he it's easy to be like oh well Tyrion did it of course because Tyrion you know him he's a dwarf he likes frequenting prostitutes he's 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 an immoral man so he would be he would definitely take a role in attempting to to kill your son for sure 
Yes, he's the imp. That makes perfect sense. Uh, I agree with everything you said there. I think those are solid reasons for Littlefinger to frame Tyrion. I would also say that Tyrion is the one Lannister who doesn't really have an army around him at any point. No big uh, uh, group of guards. Cersei's got the King's Guard. Jaime's got his own men. Tywin's got his own men. So if Littlefinger intends for this to start something, uh, Tyrion's an easy target. And of course, like you say, Littlefinger doesn't know that Catelyn and Tyrion are going to immediately interact. And Catelyn is responsible for snatching Tyrion. And Jaime is responsible for attacking Ned's men in response to that. And Tywin is responsible for unleashing hell on the Riverlands in response to all of this. And, you know, every, all the characters make their own decisions as the dominoes fall from here. But Littlefinger mm-hmm. is clearly setting out to create something like that. He doesn't mm-hmm. know exactly how it's going to happen, but he only tells this lie because he wants the Starks and Lannisters to be at each other's throats. He, again, he is, he is pushing that forward at this point. I think with no, not a strict plan of how to gain from it, but knowing that that's the situation that he can he can thrive in, um, not even necessarily by playing one off the other because he doesn't really play the Starks that much beyond the first book, but that he can he can keep people confused about what really happened. Yes, and as long as he does that, he can he can continually continually make gains. But for me, overall. The portrait of Littlefinger we get from this chapter really matches what Catelyn says earlier before she meets him and that you quoted in your summary, which is that he was always clever even as a boy, but it is one thing to be clever and another to be wise. And I think that is that is Littlefinger. He is clever, but he is unwise. Much as we might admire the, the sheer uh, conspiratorial skill of him framing Tyrion at the end of this chapter, if you break down what he's actually doing here, he is... Framing Tyrion, which puts him in danger from Tyrion later, when Tyrion mm-hmm. does eventually show up in King's Landing. He is fomenting Stark-Lannister war, which puts him in danger from Tywin, because Tywin doesn't actually want that. As we learn later in the first book, Tywin was getting ready to fight Stannis and Renly. He had no plan of going up against the Starks and the Tullys. Yep. And so we get, we get quote from Tyrion's last Game of Thrones chapter. He pointed a finger at Tyrion's face. If Cersei cannot curb the boy, you must. And if these counselors are playing as false... Tyrion knew. Spikes, he sighed. Heads, walls. (laughs) So already Tywin is on edge as far as Littlefinger is concerned. So if he knew this, that Littlefinger helped bring about that unnecessary conflict from Tywin's perspective, he would demand Littlefinger's head immediately. Uh, Littlefinger is also lying unnecessarily here. As you say, he doesn't have to frame Tyrion. He doesn't have to lie. All he has to say is Robert won it, which is the truth. And then immediately Catelyn will assume that Cersei took it from Robert Storrs. Like that, she, she will naturally reach that conclusion on her own. Yeah. And Littlefinger never lied to anybody about what happened. Uh, Littlefinger also assumes, and we'll get into this a little bit later on, that uh, Varys will not rat him out. Not either on the spot or later. And I think for me, most damningly of all, we've been talking about Littlefinger using cat's paws and cutouts and, and you know, disposable entities... But he does all of this directly, himself, to Catelyn's face, instead of through a proxy he can disavow. Littlefinger is where Catelyn gets this information from, not Sir Hugh of the Vale. Right. Not like some minor... Like, Littlefinger doesn't have her meet with a customs agent, one of the ones he bribes, and has her has that person let slip to little Catelyn, oh, Tyrion Lannister won that dagger, I saw it at the tourney. <laughs> like, and then Catelyn gets that information from a random source. Now, Littlefinger does this himself... Because he can't resist personally meeting Catelyn because of his interest in her. So that's already, I think, you see his Achilles heel at work. And yes, he survives all this. And he survives all this because the Lannisters depend on him for his financial wizardry. Because not many people take him that seriously. 
But for me, that doesn't justify the risk because you can see Martin's thumb pressing down so hard on the scales to make sure no one realizes what Littlefinger just did here. And that even when Tyrion does realize it, he, for a variety of semi-contrived reasons, doesn't slash can't do anything about it. So, Littlefinger is an extremely adept plate spinner. He wouldn't have gotten this far if he wasn't. We'll learn the extent of his conspiracy in A Clash of Kings, and it's very impressive, his financial control of the government. But I think you can already see in this chapter the weaknesses that will eventually bring that whole house of cards crashing down. Yes, very much agreed. And kind of a, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase George R. Martin here, but something interesting that Martin has said about Littlefinger is that he is the character that he thinks is the most different between the books and the show. Because in the show, Mm. as you guys all know, he's very much, very mustache twirling, or I guess chin beard twirling, uh, a chin beard twirling character who is constantly being like, ah, I'm going to fuck them. Like, I think that was the line that I was like, yeah, this guy's, this guy's bad um, in, in Game of Thrones season one. And he's very much, he's also the guy from, if you remember from season two, where he like nearly gets himself killed because he confronts Cersei openly about her incest with Jamie Lannister, which is a very uncharacteristic move for Littlefinger. So Martin has said that they're very different. And the reason why they're different is that in the books, Littlefinger is, quote-unquote, everybody's friend. So everyone thinks that they're his friend and they can make use of him. You see that even even Ned, even though Ned doesn't, doesn't trust Littlefinger, he views him as an asset that he can use as we're progressing through A Game of Thrones and that he thinks that he's has his uses in uncovering the John Aaron murder plot. It's always interesting to me that... Ned is side by side by the person who actually killed John Aaron throughout the book and just can't see Littlefinger's work at, at uh, see Littlefinger's conspiracy at work here. But um, for you guys who are listening, I, I do strongly recommend you guys check out Radio Westeros's two part series on Littlefinger. It's their episodes 23 and 24, where they go through Littlefinger in significant depth. And it's, it's a great um, two part episode of their podcast. It's about five hours of content all about Littlefinger and attempting to drill down on his conspiracies, his motivations, his characteristics, his characterization by Martin, and all the little things about Littlefinger that make him so interesting to us as readers and also as show watchers as well. Yes, indeed. Radio Westeros always does great work, and that's an especially choice pair of episodes. So I also, I second that recommendation, good sir. Mm-hmm. But... It's not just Littlefinger who is the sole conspirator that's at work here in this chapter. You also have the spider that is Varys that is here too. And Varys' game is a bit different from Littlefinger's. In fact, it's radically different from Littlefinger's game. Yeah, and you can see that at work in this chapter. This is much more Littlefinger's introduction chapter than Varys's, to be fair. Especially given Catelyn's monologue to Sir Roderick about Littlefinger's backstory. We don't get anything comparable with Varys at this point. We really don't get into Varys' backstory at all until A Clash of Kings and his monologue to Tyrion. And in this book, Varys doesn't really reveal his greater depths until Eddard Seven, which I'm highly looking forward to. That's one of my yes. favorite Ned chapters. Uh, I also recommend Girls Gone Canon, their episode on Ned Seven. They did a really great job, so check them out once again. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Varys' conversation with Ned is really well written and really well done in that chapter. Here, he's much more playing in the background and letting his reputation do the talking. Uh, as you said, he's framed as the center of a web, uh, you know, rumored as mystical, whereas Littlefinger is mired in the comparatively mundane business of counting coppers. Uh, quote, Catelyn Stark stared at the eunuch in stunned disbelief. He was a spider, she thought wildly, an enchanter or worse. 
Which, again, I think is interesting in contrast to Melisandre, who will be responsible for the one actual act of magic that Catelyn Stark sees in the series. Yes. Like she thinks of Varys as a sorcerer here in this first book, but in The Clash of Kings at Storm's End in Renly's tent, she's brought to face with what sorcery actually is, which I think is kind of an interesting contrast. Uh, Varys versus Melisandre is a favorite topic of mine, as you can tell, so we'll be getting into that <laughs> much more as the podcast goes on. I think they have a lot of interesting things in common. But here... He kind of, he lets that rep kind of precede him and lets it influence how Catelyn talks about him. Uh, but what he's actually here to do is to work in the background. He is the one, of course, who sets this meeting. He finds out, not Littlefinger, that Catelyn and Sir Roderick are in town. And he passes that information on to Littlefinger and then shows up for the meeting because he wants to see how these people react. That's what he's here to do. He is here to judge Catelyn and Littlefinger and learn from them by how they deal with this. The, the quote is, at the end of the chapter... Who, Catelyn demanded, her mouth dry with fear, her fingers ached with remembered pain. The imp, said Littlefinger as, and this is the important part, Lord Varys watched her face, Tyrion Lannister. So that's that's what Varys is here to do. He's not. This is not part of his own active conspiracy, unlike Littlefinger. He is here to get a sense of what's going on. Uh, you know, to, 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 to try to see how he can fit these characters into his plans. Although that does open the question up of why he just sits there and says nothing and is so passive in this chapter. That is the question that I have, and it's probably the biggest question I have on Vara's at this juncture in the story, is why he lets Littlefinger get away so easily with a huge lie, knowing that the outcome will be to put Westeros on a near certain war footing. When we know from Vara's and Illyrio's conversation later in the Game of Thrones that they need to delay the chaos because they're not ready, because Danny and the Dothraki are still out on the Dothraki Sea and they are not nearing the shores of Essos to make their invasion of Westeros. So what is Littlefinger doing by letting Varys get away with this? And, you know, if, if I, I guess for me, if, if I was Varys, I might have said, oh, Lord Littlefinger, I believe you are mistaken. I believe it was actually <laughs> sure. T- Tyrion who who bet up for his brother Jamie and that the dagger fell to Robert and, and you know if he wanted to do it that way but again I, I guess there's not really a, a necessarily a good outcome here for for Varas if he exposes Littlefinger at this juncture it's still going to lead to the same outcome which is that the Starks and the Lannisters will be put on a war footing now it does though also lead to the question of how aware of that does lead to the question of how much Varys is aware of what Littlefinger's doing, and it doesn't seem that he's very aware of what Littlefinger's planning. He's watching, as you put out, put it so well. He's observing, he's attempting to judge the tactical and strategic situation of what's going on in King's Landing and what Catelyn's entry into the city does, what Littlefinger does when Catelyn's around, and what he can anticipate and expect when Lord Eddard Stark arrives in two chapters uh, from now. So yeah, but it is still a big question why Littlefinger, why, why Varys lets Littlefinger get away with this lie. I, I, there are, there are definitely good theories out there, but it's not something that I necessarily believe is, can be settled at, at this juncture. And maybe something that Martin addresses down the road. I'm not sure. It might even be a great question for someone to ask George R. R. Martin at one of these conventions of what was Varys doing and why did he let Littlefinger get away with lying to Catelyn about who actually controlled the dagger and who was betting on who at the at Joffrey's name day tourney. So something to ask Martin if you guys are going to be interacting with him in the next few months. I know he's going to be at one convention, I think, in August. But but yeah, 
feel free to ask George one of these questions because it's something I would love, love, love to find more information out about. Agree, and I think for me, I think he's just trying to suss Catelyn out, and he's not sure how he how she would take the news from him that Littlefinger is lying or it didn't happen that way because he's not sure what Catelyn is going to do with the information she's getting from Littlefinger. Yeah. So I think, again, to look at the big picture in terms of what these schemers have already done at this point and what they're planning on doing at this moment, big picture, Varys and Illyrio at this point have successfully arranged the marriage between Daenerys and Caldrogo. Uh, we're going to get into this more when we get to Daenerys' third chapter, but it's very difficult to tell exactly what their plans are for Viserys at this stage. Yeah. Later exposition from the Golden Company will, if anything, only confuse the issue. So we'll <laughs> we'll we'll see if this gets. Um, Illyrio, I think, is going to have some big expository speech at some point before he dies about everything he's done. Yes. And maybe we'll get maybe we'll get a sense of what the plan was for Viserys then. Uh, Varus and Illyrio, of course, have Young Griff and the Golden Company in their back pocket. Although we don't really get into that until A Dance with Dragons. Right. Varus, I think it's fair to say, when Varus and Illyrio say they weren't ready for war now, but that they were ready for a war later, presumably what they're talking about is exploiting a war between the Lannisters and the Baratheons. Tywin versus Robert's brothers, as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. That's the war that it seems like everyone was getting ready for. And then these, these Starks and Tullys are these unexpected intruders into that fight. So the death of John Aaron and Ned's ascension to the handship were unwelcome surprises from Varus's perspective, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he presumably was planning for John Aaron to continue his hand uh, for after Robert died, whenever Varus was planning to arrange that or allow Cersei to arrange that, and then the Lannisters and Baratheons would go to war after that. So at this point, Varus doesn't know how to handle the Starks and Tullys. It doesn't seem like he knows them particularly well no. as people. So he, he unlike Littlefinger, so he doesn't really know how to read them or how they're going to handle information. And I, I get the feeling he doesn't want to commit himself to a strategy. Until he knows that. There is that line from Eddard Seven, like I uh, mentioned earlier, the conversation between Varus and Ned, where Varus says, quote, I will make another confession, Lord Eddard. I was curious to see what you would do. Why not come to me, you ask? And I must answer why. Because I did not trust you, my lord. And I think yep. the same applies to Catelyn. He's curious to see what she's going to do. And he doesn't trust her. So... Yep. Why, why out himself? Why, I mean, like, why not let his reputation do the work? Why expose part of his intelligence network to Catelyn's? Why let her know that he and Littlefinger are antagonistic? It's, it's a lot of power to give someone you have no knowledge of and who clearly is walking in with an agenda of her own. And I think you can compare that to what Varys does with Tyrion in The Clash of Kings. Similar deal. He lets Tyrion know that he knows where Shay is, so he, has, he lets the newcomers be subtly aware of his influence and then he tests them to see if he can work with them. And that has its shortcomings, of course. He, As you say, he lets Littlefinger get away with this, where he could have shut him down, effectively. But I, I, I find his approach ultimately more impressive in terms of long-term success than Littlefinger's strategy of sticking his head into the noose and assuming he's going to be clever enough to pull it out of time. Ultimately, Var- they both have shortcomings. They're contrasts for a reason. They work well together, like I said. But if I had to pick who I find more impressive as a schemer... I think it's Varys. I would agree, but at the same juncture, Varys has a limitation in imagination in that you're right in that he doesn't really have any idea about the Starks and the Tullys and what they're going to do if the country goes to war, but you have to think that he probably should have an idea of what they're going of he should probably be developing an idea of what they're going to do because they are going to play significant roles. They played significant roles in Robert's Rebellion and the Greyjoy Rebellion. And you have 
the riverlands that are sitting at crossroads between the Westerlands and, you know, the Crownlands. So if the Lannisters and the Baratheons go to war, the riverlands would seem a likely battlefield as it served in, in Robert's Rebellion, that you would have the Tullys fighting for one side or the other and the Starks fighting on behalf of whoever the Tullys are fighting for. I'm, and I am kind of speaking a little bit in a what-if scenario, but it does strike me that Varys's conception of Westeros is very much grounded in what is east of the Trident and what is south of the Neck. And that has limitations um, for what we're for what for what he's seeing and what he's going to be able to control and understand. And I think that does have an impact on how much he knows, and he is supposed to know a lot as the Master of Whispers, and he it does have impacts on how much he can control. Um, I, I do think his that Varys is much more interesting because he's his schemes become don't are not necessarily clear this early in the game. You have a general idea, at least from Arya three from a Game of Thrones, that he's in league potentially with the Targaryens, but that doesn't come into its full fruition until we get to a Dance of Dragons. Whereas with Littlefinger, and I believe we said this in and before we came on air, that Littlefinger's schemes and goals, and I think not even on air, it, on air itself, are very apparent in the, his introduction in this chapter. But Varys's aren't, and not until you actually get over to Essos, to Pentos, and you have Tyrion interacting with Illyrio and John Connington and young Griff, that that becomes more clear. But at this juncture, Varys is very mysterious, his goals are opaque, and he's a fascinating character as well to kind of look at see his limitations, but also see that he has a really long conspiracy in mind. Because you have to think about it. Was it that John Connington says in The Lost Lord that they approached John Connington like right after Robert's Rebellion? So we're talking like, I think it was like, he says a few years after he joins the Golden Company, Varys approaches John Connington. So we're talking like four, five, six years after Robert's Rebellion ends. So the late 280s, and now it's almost 300 this juncture in the story, 10 years down the road. And he's had this plan he's been working on for 10 years, and he's at the juncture where he's about to implement it, but he still has limitations in how he can implement it and the players that are going to be involved that he might not necessarily be able to control as easily as he can. He hopes to control someone like Young Griff and John Connington and some of these folks that he's allied with in the story. That's very true, especially a good point about the geography involved. You can't be planning for a Lannister-Baratheon war without assuming the Riverlands, as Westeros' battleground, are going to be involved somehow. And of course, since Catelyn is married into the Starks, that brings the Starks in. True, that's very true. I think it's more for me that Varys didn't get a good sense of Ned and Catelyn as people, as individual decision-makers at this point, whereas Littlefinger does kind of have a handle on them. And I think he... He's got that line, I forget who he says it, he says it to Ned when Ned says to Varys that it's that it's, it's him, Varys, that Cersei should be afraid of. And that Varys says no, because he has no true allies, that if Cersei wants Varys' head off, all she has to do is tell Robert, right. and it's done. Littlefinger has this support network he's built around himself, armored in gold, as Tyrion points it, puts it in The Clash of Kings, where he has this whole bureaucracy dependent on him that if he's disrupted a lot of it goes down with him Varys is not in a position where you can have that so I think it it ultimately makes more sense for him to play as conservative as he does even though it's it leads to frustrating moments like him not adding Littlefinger because yes. he can't he really can't risk because he has so much to lose if a risk goes over 
that it's it's better for him to take the conservative play in almost every case and hold on to the scheme he's currently got and really take a long... Because he takes a long time in this book before he comes to Ned. Mm-hmm. He takes a while in Clash before he really starts coming to Tyrion with information. So, which I th- And I think he has to ultimately test them that long because if, if he trusts the wrong person, it's all over. Right. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. And I think that's a good rejoinder to my criticism of, of Varys as a conspirator, uh, that he is very much a friendless individual in the capital and that he has to play, he has to walk a very tight rope in trying to placate different factions and sides and that he's not the, he's not a friend to everyone as George R. Martin described Littlefinger, that he's a friend to no one besides himself, his shadows and his, his little birds. But that kind of like takes us into our more general likes and dislikes about this chapter. Uh, for me, again, I really like Catelyn Four a lot. It's a terrific workhorse that accomplishes, in my opinion, three things. Um, the first is that it introduces us to perhaps the most pivotal set piece in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that is King's Landing, and he does it well, but I'll, I'll let Emma talk more about that. And then secondly, it introduces us to a wider political conspiracy at work, whether it's actually one at play or one in, in imagination of a very prolific schemer is something that we're going to see develop as the story progresses. And then finally, it introduces us to two pivotal to two pivotal characters, Littlefinger and Varys, who play roles of increasing prominence and plot importance, and plot importance in *A Song of Ice and Fire*, and he introduces all of these elements with aplomb, as you can tell from Emmett's breakdown of Littlefinger and Varys and their conspiracies. Yeah, like you say, this is one of those chapters that has to accomplish a lot of things because it sets the foundation for so much of what follows, and it really does a very deft, efficient job of doing that. So Martin leaves himself room to grow here that he's really taken advantage of since. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my really, the only dislike I, I could come up with for this chapter is that Kat's extended monologue to Sir Roderick about her past relationship with Littlefinger reads kind of strangely. She uh, she explains the whole background in dialogue with Sir Roderick in significant and private depth. And it's not that I mind the, the info dump and the history behind it, because I think it's interesting. But when I'm reading this, I have a hard time imagining this scene at play. This is a very, like I said, a very private history that Kat is sharing with Roderick, and it's awkward. Even if Catelyn was, quote-unquote, beyond delicacy, as she thinks, before launching into the monologue, what might have worked a little bit better is having Roderick trail his words off as Lord Baelish once, uh, and then Catelyn going into an internal monologue of the shared past before Roderick picks up again with, quote, Sir Roderick's fingers fumbled once again for non-existent whiskers. Littlefinger sits on the small council now, boom, and then you're brought immediately into Littlefinger kind of uh, be entering into the story in grand fashion as we find out just a few paragraphs beyond that. True, it is very much Martin going, oh wait, I have to explain who Littlefinger is before this Catelyn Littlefinger scene or it's not going to mean anything to the audience. But it is it is a very weird violation of intimacy in a way that doesn't feel like Catelyn and feels more like Martin speaking through Catelyn. Yes. Uh, it's, it's slightly more indelicate, but, you know, when we get to the mountains of, of the moon and, and Tyrion is talking about how Littlefinger has bragged about taking Catelyn and Lysa's maidenheads at court, and everyone is just shocked and outraged and how dare you would even bring up such an <laughs> indelicate thing. And, I mean, Catelyn's not being that crude, but she's talking about the same stuff here. Right. The same backstory, and she's doing it with barely any prompting, without any real need to a character with whom she's certainly very affectionate, but is just mm-hmm. not not someone you talk to about this. So, especially Catelyn. So, right. 
it, it was something we praised Martin for as we go through this podcast is how elegantly he fits in a lot of the world building and info dump exposition. This is one case where he just went with the more efficient approach of, you know what, I just gotta have her say it. It's not gonna make sense, <laughs> but here's who Littlefinger is, guys. And it's not bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that I, I read this and I'm like, oh, Game of Thrones sucks. It's more like that I, I have a hard time picturing it and I have a hard time thinking about some of these conversations because, I mean, you know, in, in real life, if someone brings up a character from, you know, my own past or history that I haven't engaged with in a long time, like I will sit there and think for a moment, oh, I remember I was in a couple classes with them in college. I went to a couple parties with them and, you know, this and that happened and they kind of fell off the face of the earth and stuff like that. And, I, and But then when I pick up a dialogue, it's more like, yeah, I remember them. Great guy. Great girl. You know, had a lot of fun back in the day sort of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's not like someone brings up, hey, remember remember Rick? And you like you stop and pause and pose and go, I'll never forget that day Rick and I looked at the falling leaves. Like, it's yeah, it's very unnatural <laughs> and, and stilted. And it almost it, does, it feels almost like something Cersei would do. Like if Sansa right. brought up someone and like a drunk Cersei would launch into this monologue. But it doesn't like Catelyn's a little more circumspect than this. It doesn't. It doesn't feel quite right that she's just talking like talking about all this. She she cares about decorum. This this isn't quite what she does. I agree. Yes, that is it is quite awkward. Uh, in terms of what I really liked about the chapter, uh, everything we brought up so far, of course, I really love Catelyn Four, and that uh, you mentioned the introduction to King's Landing itself, and specifically, I love how Martin makes sure our first glimpse of the Red Keep. The setting of so many of A Song of Ice and Fire's most memorable moments is itself unforgettable. And the quote is, and I have to try to do it justice. Please. And above it all, frowning down from Egon's high hill, was the Red Keep. Seven huge drum towers crowned with iron ramparts, an immense grim barbican, vaulted halls and covered bridges, barracks and dungeons and granaries, massive curtain walls studded with archers' nests, all fashioned of pale red stone. Aegon the Conqueror had commanded it built. His son, Magor the Cruel, had seen it completed. Afterward, he had taken the heads of every stonemason, woodworker, and builder who had labored on it. Only the blood of the dragon would ever know the secrets of the fortress the dragon lords had built, he vowed. <laughs> that's just that's just such an awesome, perfect passage yes. uh, for so many reasons. It's, it's very visual in contrast to what you were saying about Catelyn and Sir Roger, you can see this. You can see it coming into view as Cat- as the storm dancer curves into the bay. You know, you can picture the Red Keep hulking on that hill. It immediately gives you this, this strong sense of place. Uh, the the color is is perfect. That They picked red, not just because it's the Targaryen color, but in the same way that, uh, as, as Barristan will say about Astapor in A Storm of Swords, that its bricks are red because it's mixed in with the blood of its people. Red Keep feels very much the same way, given that it's brought up in the context of Magor taking all these heads. It feels like the... You can almost imagine that the Keep was white when they built it, and, and then it grew red on all that blood. It Like, it fed on all those people like a tick. And now it's it's framed sitting there, frowning down on the city, grimacing. It feels like a... Like a the classic fantasy dragon in a cave. There's a cave mm-hmm. above the village and there's a dragon who lives there that we pay tribute to. That's what the Red Keep is. It's yes. the blood of the dragon, the house of the dragon. It's the dragon looming above the, the city and everyone has to pay tribute to it. So if, if if Winterfell is Bran at some level, like we were touching on when we were doing the early Winterfell chapters, if they, they, mm-hmm. they are connected and kind of stained in for each other at some emotional, symbolic level, 
then the Red Keep is Magor the Cruel. It is Egan the Unworthy. It is Mad Eris. Like, all the worst of the Targaryen kings, the worst part of their heritage. Mm-hmm. That's what this represents. And I love that contrast between Egon the Conqueror commanded it built. You know, Egan the state builder, the, the, the dreamer, the guy who came up with the idea of King's Landing, the one who wants to build, but, you know, what undercuts that is his son. And what his son does as soon as his dad's dream is realized, he immediately uh, stains it with blood. And I think that's that's the Targaryen legacy right there. These these great yes. accomplishments, these, these... You know, I think at Westeros... There's advantages to Westeros being one state. It's not just the Targaryens having pride and wanting to rule over everything just because. I think Westeros does gain from that. But the the horrible, horrible human cause that has gone underneath it. I love that Martin so perfectly captures that in our introduction to the Red Keep. Because this is the seat of power in Westeros, and this is how it's being framed. And I just think that works brilliantly. Yeah, I totally agree. And it really does do a lot of work. And, you know, there's a interesting uh, biblical parallel in that from the, the Temple of, of Jerusalem, uh, it was ordered, built by King David, but God told David that he was a man of war and that a man of peace had to build his temple. And uh, so his son Solomon was the one who actually built uh, the first temple, the Solomonic Temple, as it's known as, in in Jerusalem, according to to the Old Testament or to the to the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, depending on your religion. Um, but in this case, you know, you have the uh, the David and Solomon figures are a bit more. Um, well, uh, de- definitely David and Aegon bear similarities in being men of war. Uh, Solomon and uh, and Magor are not necessarily good <laughs> con- good parallels to each other. Because uh, Magor is, Ma- like, yeah, not exactly. Magor would cut babies in half for the fun of it, not to make right. a point about justice. Yeah, <laughs> yes, quite. But you know, it's just something that's striking. But yeah, no, the imagery is is fantastic, and um, I, I do recommend folks who are interested in, in this pick up the Lands of Ice and Fire, which is a great map book that George R. R. Martin released in 2012. And uh, for, for me, because I'm, I'm I'm not a nerd, I had all the maps fra- uh, not framed. I had them laminated, so I can write one uh, with a magic marker about where different things occurred and trying to track people's movement and stuff like that. Which the which they there's a map that actually tracks every character's movement in the books. Uh, but but I like making my own annotations on the map. So I do, and there's a map of King's Landing which really shows what Martin's uh, intention for King's Landing is and what how he views the city. So it's. It's a great little piece of, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a great side thing that if you're really interested in the series, which I'm assuming you are because you are listening to a, in a Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast, that it's a great pickup for you guys. And, um, you know, holiday season is coming up in, you know, six months, I guess. You know, feel free to ask for that for uh, for, for Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever holiday or, or secular uh, life-affirming day that you're you're planning on celebrating here in the next few months. Well said, you giant nerd. I agree. Uh, that that <laughs> definitely, definitely fleshes out what Martin's going for here beautifully. Um, in terms of what I don't like about the chapter, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's just, it's a, there's a lot of convenience going on here as far as Littlefinger is concerned. Uh, he just happens to name the Lannister that Catelyn runs into a few chapters from now. Varys just happens to decide to stay stay mum about it, even though, as Illyrio would later point out, the war is happening too soon, and that's in part because of what Littlefinger does here. I get that Littlefinger is a reckless character. I know that's deliberate on Martin's part. You know, I'm sure it's there in part to undercut his chessmaster vibe that he's taking these huge risks. But it makes it makes it a little less urgent, a little. It makes Littlefinger a little less threatening when I know that the Martin, that the, the author is so repeatedly 
kind of whisking him away to safety. It, it yes. makes it makes it seem like almost like he's got to deal with the author as a character, <laughs> and that 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 makes him a little less compelling to me. Uh, is, is these? It's, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a guy who goes around saying that that's a plot hole. That's a plot hole. That doesn't. You know, that's not what interests me about stories. And I'm perfectly fine with authors fudging the details, as long as I don't notice. As long as the story is right. compelling enough and the character is good enough that I don't notice. Because I'm, I'm, I'm generally. I don't know these logistical things well anyway. So, but, but if it's bad enough that I notice it and I do with this, then that's where I have a problem with it. Where it's the. The scaffolding is a little too exposed, and it's the the manipulations are a little too clear to get the characters where they need to be. I I, I like being swept up in the drama. And, oh, this happened, and then this happened, and then this. With Littlefinger, sometimes it's a little too go. Oh, Martin's doing a thing to to make sure he's still around <laughs> in a second. Mar- yes. Martin swoops in to save Littlefinger a little too blatantly, repeatedly for me is what I'm saying. Yeah, that convenience factor does play a role in in how we as readers engage with Littlefinger on on page and it it does kind of strike me too that as a writer you you do have to have a certain amount of convenience in the narrative in order to make things work or else it's going to be a 1500 page book that is describing how Littlefinger is plotting and what the intricacies of his plot are but you know in a Game of Thrones it's very much that Littlefinger is just getting away with a whole lot of stuff that he probably shouldn't be getting away with if this was a more carefully conceived character. And I think that Martin kind of does a little bit of, of fixing of that in A Storm of Swords, or rather in A Clash of Kings, where he sends Littlefinger away to deal with the Tyrells, so you don't see him interacting with anyone for the next, for most of the book. And then when you get back to him in A Storm of Swords, uh, he is. He explains what he was doing, and it seems uh, it, it's an interesting way that he explains it about how he had the singers that would influence Loras Terrell to join the to take the white cloak, and he would praise Joffrey to the high to the high heavens. But then he would have his court his his men that were assigned to him whisper about how Joffrey was a monster and those types of things. So I think that is interesting the way that Martin does it. He does kind of fix it a little bit down the down the road, but at this juncture, it is very convenient for Littlefinger to be doing all of these things and then of course for him to name the one Lannister that 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 Catelyn is about to run into in about a dozen about eight or nine chapters from now so yeah I, I agree there's there's a bit of convenience in Littlefinger I still love the character don't love don't love the character but I love the character if that makes sense um, absolutely yeah. it does but yeah yeah again uh, it's not that I don't want authors to move things around at their convenience because that's what a plot is uh, but it's for me again. It's a little too naked. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be able to realize that's what you're doing. I shouldn't be able to see your thumb on the scales. For me, that's what separates mediocre authors from great authors. Is that you're, you're not always able to tell in the moment that you're being moved around expertly, but you actually are. Uh, and for for me, this is a, it's a little it's a it's a little too obvious, a little too exposed. But again, it, it gets it gets the job done in the narrative, and I still love how it unfolds towards the War of Five Kings. So not a major complaint. Uh, great chapter. I think it's best Catelyn chapter so far. Would you say? I would say I like Catelyn too. It's probably my favorite one so far. Um, right. But but I, I yeah that's again a, that's a close call. I, I but again I think I think this is a great chapter as well, and I do love that when we're dialing into the politics here, and you know I really do love the interactions that Catelyn and Sir Roderick have, which start the chapter off, which is something that's really. Um, 
fun for me. It's, it's a bit more lighter than what we get into with Catelyn and Littlefinger and Varys' interactions at the end of the chapter. But there is some potential foreshadowing that Martin is using in some of those interactions between Catelyn and Sir Roderick, which do potentially play a role in how their stories unfold down the road. Yeah, rereading this chapter, a bunch of little foreshadowing notes, or potentially foreshadowing notes, were jumping out at me. Bringing up Sir Roderick, yeah, there's this... Uh, Sir Roderick, as you mentioned in your summary, shaves his beard, uh, because he keeps he keeps puking into it as he leans <laughs> over the side uh, to deal with his seasickness. And there are these moments when he doesn't realize it, and, uh, quote, Sir Roderick's fingers fumbled once again for non-existent whiskers. And this could well be a coincidence, but that very much reminds me of Davos reaching for his bag of finger bones, his luck, as he calls it, even after mm-hmm. the Blackwater. And those, that, bag, that bag is gone. And even, you know, the, the loss both happens at sea, even. Roderick loses his whiskers at sea. Davos loses his, his luck at sea. Yep. Uh, it, it could be very much one of those situations where, as uh, Martin was writing Davos's character in A Clash of Kings and what happens at the Blackwater, he remembered that line or he re- reread that line from Sir Roderick and he was like, hey, that's, that's evocative. That's a nice image. I'm going to... Yeah kind of put a spin on that for Davos. That's something we've talked about before, that some things that seem like foreshadowing might just be Martin going back to them as he was yes. writing later books and deciding to deciding then to deploy them, not yeah. having had them in mind when he first wrote it. So that might be one example of that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that uh, I, I think that's what Martin likes to do a lot is utilize these things of Sir Davos's finger bones being this constant thing that he's he's either holding on to in a clash of kings or he'll reach down and they're not there anymore because they're swept off of his neck at the Battle of the Blackwater. I think that's, a, like you said, it's very evocative and helps to ground us in Davos as a character and also kind of helps ground us in Sir Roderick, who's famous for having those. And I don't know how you picture him, but I picture him having those kind of Ambrose Burnside type things where he has like the sideburns coming down from his hair, not reaching his chin, but going straight across into his mustache and I think that's a that's a, a cool way of, of imagining him. And I think um, Ron Donaghy, who's the actor who plays Sir Roger Grissel in Game of Thrones, the TV show, is uh, does does a really good job of portraying him and having those amazing, wonderful whiskers that, uh, you know, when I picture him right now, I can't not picture him as having the amazing facial hair that maybe someday I'll be able to grow. Maybe someday. You can dream, Jeff. You can dream. But yes. I agree. The, the, those, those perfect bristly beard rose is exactly what I picture with Sir Roderick, almost almost cartoony yes. uh, in how bristling they must be. Yeah, I have the same thought. Elsewhere on foreshadowing approach, as Catelyn is approaching the Red Keep for the first time, there's the quote, When they reached the Red Keep, the portcullis was down and the great gate sealed for the night, but the castle windows were alive with flickering lights. And coming out onto this after reading the first couple of Danny chapters, after thinking for a while about the fate of King's Landing after seeing Cersei blow up the Sept of Baelor in the show, that struck me as an image that might be in line with Danny's images of all the doors in the King's Landing being red and yes. the wildfire into King's Landing, and that this might be an image that is an early echo of the wildfire-related damage to come to King's Landing. You know, every window in the castle being alive with flickering lights, and they will be again when the fire strikes, you know. Oh, yeah. Maybe think it might be an image crafted by Martin with that fate in mind. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where if you're seeing the same sort of phraseology used around a place that it's intentional on Martin's part that he wants to reinforce that image. So when you have Danny seeing that all doors are red, a fire burning in every hearth in each or, or a fire burning in every house, 
at, at first glance and in isolation, it just reads that Danny is envisioning King's Landing at nighttime, right? But then when you see it here in this Catlin chapter of the Red Keep having flickering lights in every window and there are the, the flames were alive and that type of um, imagery that's that we're were being shown here in this chapter. It is intentional that Martin is trying to paint a picture here and is potentially foreshadowing the coming fire and blood that's coming for King's Landing in the in the form of Daenerys Targaryen's dragons and dragon fire, and of course in the green fire of that we see in the Blackwater and the green fire that we we see when Cersei burns the Tower of the Hand in a feast for crows, and the green and the red fire, yellow, red and yellow fire. Uh, joining together potentially in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring when Danny burns the fucker to the ground, most likely accidentally, in, in my opinion. But we'll we'll get to that in due, in due time. Agree. And it's just the imagery is when you're describing that all the colors and the fires, it's just it's very vivid imagery. It's almost, you know, it makes you think of fires crackling and, and feel the mm-hmm. heat on your face. You know, the red the red keep feels like fire and feels like blood. Which is perfectly appropriate, given what House built it. Um, yes. So it's, again, again a case of setting reflecting the characters, which is something a lot of great writing does, and I think something that Martin especially does very well. Speaking mm. of messing with the Targaryens and mm. bringing them to Westeros, there's this great little moment when uh, the knife comes out, so to speak, in this conversation that this chapter is focused on. And, quote, Varus lifted the knife with exaggerated delicacy, which I love that as a Varus thing, mm. exaggerated delicacy, being overly... Uh, flamboyant with it, and ran a thumb along its edge. Blood welled and he let out a squeal and dropped the dagger back on the table. Careful, Catelyn told him. It's sharp. <laughs> right after the nick of time, there, which is another nice touch. Nothing holds an edge like Valyrian steel, Littlefinger said, as Varys sucked at his bleeding thumb and looked at Catelyn with sullen admonition. <laughs> Again, just a wonderfully written little passage. Wonderf- little great phrases. Exaggerated delicacy, sullen admonition. Those are just great phrases to describe Varys and what he's like. But as a, as a symbol, as a potential bit of foreshadowing, I wonder if that could f- foreshadow Varus's manipulation of Targaryens, playing with Valyrian steel, if you will, backfiring on him. He, yeah. As he says to Jaime, he hates the sight of his own blood, and now here he is, you know, creating that sight, causing his own blood to spill by the, the, the power of the Valyrian, you know, artifact in this case, but people in reality that he's messing with. Maybe this is an image that hints that you know, you play with fire, you get yourself burned, so to speak, and that Varus is uh, toying with Targaryens and Valyrian steel is going to get him killed. Yeah, I think that's a really strong point. I think there's, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think it's, uh, besides that, I imagine Varus uh, picking up the uh, the Valyrian dagger with like two little fingers and like sit there slowly and circling around the hilt and he picks it up and he holds it away from himself. And then he puts his thumb up there and decides to like kind of play with it a little. And ow, <laughs> ow! Exactly. Only then it gets him. Um, that's perfect. And you know, it's funny too. Like for Varys, there's a really, really interesting bit of potential foreshadowing. This is not something that has been revealed in the books yet. But the quote is: "Only the blood of the dragon would ever know the secrets of the fortress the dragon lords had built. He, that is, Magor the Cruel, vowed." You know who knows the secrets of the Red Keep Fortress? Varys. God damn it, it's Varys. He knows the tunnels, the crooks and the rock that open secret passages. Hell, he even knows how many rungs it is to get to Tywin's room in the Tower of the Hand when him and Tyrion are venturing through the tunnels at the end of A Storm of Swords. 
in my mind, this is hinting that maybe Varys is a Targaryen. You get, if only the blood of the dragon would never know the secrets of the fortress the dragonlords had built. Well, the person that knows the secrets of the Red Keep in the story is Varys, man. Like, Varys has, knows everything there is to know about the Red Keep. You know, he, you have him at various points when he's leading Tyrion through the tunnels, telling him, oh, Tyrion, you better close your eyes. This is going to be something that you don't want to see. And of course, you as the reader are like, no, wait, open your eyes. Let us know what, what you're seeing there. But at the same I desperately want to see that. I don't care if Tyrion doesn't. Right. I want to see it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but then, you know, you have him like uh, doing things like uh, he open he he pushes a, a rock in that one room that he's with, with Tyrion in a storm of swords, and it opens up this chamber, which lets Shay get in, and then Varys immediately disappears, and he goes in back and through the rock. And yeah, it's it's really interesting um, potential foreshadowing here that Varys is a Targaryen. And I believe that he's a Targaryen, and I won't go into depth on this. I, I did write an essay about this several years ago in the Blood of the Conqueror series, uh, called The Conspirators, in which I talk about um, the potential that Varys may be a bright flame that is a descendant of Aryan Targaryen, the uh, Targaryen that we run into in The Hedge Knight. And um, given his that Aryan spends, Aryan spends a significant amount of time in Lys, and Varys is apparently from Lys, or so Maester Pacell says, although as we find out in A Dance of Dragons, is a little bit confused because Varys is also in Pentos a lot of the time, but I won't get into all that. But uh, needless to say, I think that it's strong evidence potentially that Varys may be a Targaryen and that he knows the secrets of the Red Keep and that only the blood of the dragon, namely Varys, would ever know the secrets of the fortress the Dragon Lords had built. True. I, I'm divided on Varys as a Targaryen. I see good arguments in favor for and against it, but this is one where I agree this is an argument in favor of it being the case that he's either a Targaryen or a Blackfire or a Bright Flame or from some branch of the dragon family. Uh, yeah, that line from Magor's rings with that classic Martin ironic semi-truth when you when you put it in context with Varys uh, as a Targaryen descendant because then Magor was right, but in a way he never imagined, where even as, as a different family ruled over the Red Keep, still the Dragonlord's blood knows the secret, but as the Master of Whispers, not as the king. Yeah. So that's there's there's an irony to that undercutting what Magor thought that seems very Martin-esque to me, and I think is 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 very pleasing. So that's that's one of the I would say one of the best pieces of evidence in favor of Varys being some kind of Targaryen. Yeah, and and, and I guess it's one of these those things that I'm not sure that Martin will ever confirm one way or the other. Sort of the same way we talked about with Tyrion, whether Tyrion is going to be revealed as a Targaryen. I think that may be something that Martin will keep ambiguous even by the end of A Dream of Spring that people will be debating for years after the last book comes out whether Tyrion is a Targaryen or not. It may be that Varys's role as a Targaryen or identity as a Targaryen is going to be something that Martin leaves ambiguous and up to reader interpretation. I think that reads very Martin-esque to me, for sure. Certainly possible. We'll have to wait and see. I guess we will. Uh, speaking of speculation and theories and discussions and all that order sort of stuff we do in the fandom. Uh, obviously, this is a chapter rife with uh, political gamesmanship, but mm -hmm. there's not a lot... Coming back to it, there's not a lot that's mysterious here because we've seen how Littlefinger and Varys have played out in the book since. We know that Littlefinger is uh, framing both Tyrion and was uh, framing the Lannisters about Jon Arryn. We know a lot about what Varys is intending. So... 
more the the kind of the theory that comes to mind with this chapter, Catelyn Four in Game of Thrones, is not so much about uh, what the schemers are doing in this chapter, and more about their overall project. And that's where you get the theory that Varys and Littlefinger are not fighting each other, not uh, rivals in the intelligence world, but are in fact secret partners working together, one team. Yeah, that's uh, I so one hundred percent believe this theory. Don't you, man? Like <laughs> this theory is so I'm right. It explains everything, everything, man. Like you, you know, it makes you ha- everything much more simple, not much more complicated and stupid at all. Right? You know, you have. You, I asked the question during the main podcast, like, why didn't Varys expose Littlefinger? Well, because they're working together, bro. You know it. Like the evidence is right there. You just have to take they're it. The same, they're the same guy. You ever have a photo what? with them together? I don't no. think so. You could say that's just because cameras don't exist in Westeros, but that's just. That's just you trying to get out of this perfect theory, Joe. <laughs> this perfect. Theory but yeah, this ass. is dumb. This is this is a dumb, dumb, dumb theory. Even before we get to the specifics, why you know it's dumb because, again, they're they're written as contrast. They're written as different kinds of schemers. This is Martin saying, "Here are the different kinds of political manipulators you can get: the 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 risk taking jazz soloist versus the conservative concert pianist. The guy whose motivations are exposed, but his schemes are hidden." Versus the guy whose schemes, whose network is exposed, but his motivations are hidden. So yes. to have them be on the same team is would, it's just it's just dramatically it would just it's just disappointing. It would be deflating. It would it's an uninteresting thing to do with these two characters when you have much more you get much more drama out of them working at cross purposes and them again being a, you know opposites feeding off each other. Yeah, and and the thing too is like if if you go into the show the show makes it very explicit in a way that martin can't because littlefinger and varas are not point of view characters but you have a number of scenes in the show especially in season one season two and season three where varas and littlefinger are interacting alone without a character like ned present or a character like Arya present and because they're interacting we get the idea that they're at cross purposes like you said they are antagonists to each other and I think especially for the first few seasons, especially season one more than any other season, I think that George R. R. Martin had a very, very strong influence on the show and was doing a lot of stuff in talking with the show writer, the showrunners and the writers and saying, like, they would ask him stuff like, well, what is the exact relationship between Varas and, and Littlefinger? And Martin would say they're, 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 they're the enemies, essentially. But, you know, you can also really kind of get this when you step out of the show, you can get this from the books itself, from, you know, Littlefinger saying uh, in the next Ned chapter, leave Lord Varys to me, sweet lady, if you'll permit me a small obscenity and where better for it than here. Again, they're in the brothel. I hold the man's balls in the palm of my hand. He cupped his fingers smiling or would if he were a man or had any balls. You see, if the pie is opened, the birds begin to sing, and Varas wouldn't like that. Were I you, I would worry more about the Lasters, and less about the eunuch. So what Littlefinger is communicating here is that he believes that he holds Varas in... uh, He holds power over Varas, and he holds the ability for him to use and utilize intelligence 
in the way that Littlefinger wants him to utilize it, um, which isn't necessarily the case. And there is a bit of Littlefinger-esque bragging and boasting about it that's inherent here. But it does show a not complimentary relationship, to be sure, in that little line from A Game of Thrones Edit 4. Certainly true, and that gets backed up uh, from Varys's point of view when Arya overhears him talking with Illyrio. They think they're having a private conversation, but she's listening in. And this is from a Game of Thrones Arya 3. Varys says, quote, Littlefinger, the gods only know what game Littlefinger is playing. Uh, and he goes on to say that, you know, Lord Stark is the one who's, who's giving him trouble, but and he's analyzing Ned's moves and Cersei's moves, but Littlefinger is the one he can't quite explain uh, and can't quite justify his actions to himself, which is... Not something you do when someone is your partner. You don't express complete bafflement at the game they are playing and what they're right. even up to. Right. That's, yeah. That's something you. That's something you do about your about a rival or an unexpected entry into the game. Not not your best bud. Yeah. Your co-conspirator. Yeah, for sure. And and he even describes it as Littlefinger's meddling, in terms of what Lord Stark knows about things that are going on in in the capital and going on in the in the greater realm, and then. Uh, you also have Ned and Varys interacting at the end of A Game of Thrones. And this, some people have said that, that Varys is lying here. And I don't believe that Varys is lying here. I think that he is not necessarily saying everything that he's into, or rather, he's, I think that Varys is not necessarily revealing everything that he is conspiring towards and what his ultimate role and endgame is. But he's also talking with a condemned man who he knows is going to die and who he knows is going to he he can speak in frankly and uh almost you know I, that's funny i kind of get the impression from this scene from Edward 15 from a game of thrones that varus is almost like unloading his soul sort of so to speak on what is going on and kind of like treating ned almost as a a, a confessor would treat a priest in a lot of ways, it's kind of the the vibe that I get that I'm getting from it. Although, of course, the power roles are, are reversed in in my own kind of uh, imagining. But to get to the the thing, uh, to get to it exactly, uh, Ned asks, "Is is this your scheme, or are you in league with Littlefinger?" That seemed to amuse the eunuch. I would sooner wed the Black Goat of Cohor. Littlefinger is the second most devious man in the Seven Kingdoms. Oh, I feed him choice whispers, sufficient so he thinks I am his. Just as I allow Cersei to believe I am hers. Yeah. It does not speak to these guys being in cahoots whatsoever. And again, I don't think there's a reason for Varys to be lying to Ned in this particular scene. And I don't get why people, again, why people think that these two characters are working with each other. They're not. They're really not. They're really, really not. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I like the idea of that Varus just needs someone to talk to, and Ned's an easy target because yeah. he's easy to be honest to someone who's about to be shipped off to the wall or executed. But uh, yeah, I think it's maybe some people just hunting for a twist, even if it's not one supported or not an interesting one, or people trying to, you know, simplify Varus and Littlefinger to you know, an, an easy answer that kind of resolves both their schemes neatly, even though I think what we're seeing with both of them is just how complicated and contradictory and, you know, the the crazy life of a schemer, the, the, the tangled webs you weave when you practice to deceive, mm-hmm. I think is more what we're looking at in Varys and Littlefinger. I think it's what we're looking at them more than the aha moments that solves right. everything. Yes. Uh, which I think is what's being looked for with a theory like that, and I think that's ultimately barking at the wrong tree. And ultimately, like you say, we do have we do have word of God on this from George R. R. Martin himself, 
we do Tavares and Littlefinger. So George R. Martin appeared at the Guadalajara Book Festival in late 2016, and he had an extended Q&A session, which is really great, and I do encourage folks to go ahead and read that, and that is linked in the show notes for our patrons. And one questioner asked him, how would you describe Vara's and Littlefinger's relationship? And George R. Martin said, adversarial. Both of them know a lot about the other one, including some very damaging things. That's interesting. So they're in essentially a stalemate because each one knows that if he revealed what he knows about the other one, then the other one would reciprocate and they would both be destroyed. So they're both locked in a certain stalemate. I think Littlefinger has a better idea of what Varys wants than Varys has an idea of what Littlefinger wants. Littlefinger is an agent of chaos who likes to be unpredictable and succeeds in that. So... If you don't want to believe, if you want to believe that Littlefinger is lying about Varys, fine. If you want to believe that Varys is lying to Illyrio for some unknown reason, okay, I mean, you're dumb, but okay. And then if you want to believe that Varys is lying to Ned at the end of A Game of Thrones, I mean, whatever. But then you have George R. R. Martin saying that their relationship is adversarial and they're not working together and that they know too much about the other one. So they're in a, locked in a stalemate. So they're not revealing things about the other one because they know that as soon as they reveal something, that there would be some reciprocity in what the other one would say about what the other one's scheme actually is. So really, like this theory is bad and it needs to die. And there's so much evidence against it and the evidence for it is so weak and not good, but like most bad theories, it never dies. These bad theories <laughs> live forever. We can't kill them. We can't. We can't do it, Emmett. Like I, I've, I've tried. We've tried. Eighteen episodes in, we are still fighting bad. The bad theories, and they are not going away. What is dead may never die, but rises again, harder and dumber. <laughs> but yeah, and it's it's frustrating because it's much more interesting is the dynamic. It, much more interesting is the dynamic we have that Martin laid out, which is that they're in a uh, state of mutually assured destruction. They can't move against the other one because, you know, Littlefinger and Varus have both ensured that they're going to take the other one down with them if, 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 if ever they feel a knife tickling at their back. And I think, and ultimately, like we were say, saying earlier, they're moving in such geographical directions, they're almost not contradictory at this point. They're almost complementary because yeah. they're working in such different realms. So... I do like the show's dynamic where they're kind of sassing each other in front of the Iron Throne, but I, I don't think Littlefinger and Varys are ultimately supposed to be going head-to-head. Yeah. I don't think their ultimate rival is each other. I think their ultimate source of destruction is, you know, themselves. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to expose their own weaknesses. And that the contrasts between them are more thematic than narrative, if that makes sense. We're supposed to look at them as the two kinds of schemers more than we are supposed to anticipate either a union or a fight between them. Yeah, I, I do. I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, we, we saw a potential version for how Littlefinger's end plays out in season seven of Game of Thrones. And his end comes at the behest of the Starks, which in, in my mind makes perfect narrative sense for how Stark to be the ultimate downfall of Littlefinger, given how much shit he does to how Stark in the, the first five books of the series. And then in season seven, you have... But then in season seven, you have Melisandre telling Varys that he will die in Westeros. And uh, yeah, again, you have that version of the endgame for Littlefinger where he's killed by the Starks. And in 
Season 8, potentially, probably you're going to see Varys dying in Westeros. And not as a result of what Littlefinger does, but as a result of who Varys is and who Varys... Uh, and, and Varys' different schemes and conspiracies that he's weaved throughout the first seven seasons of Game of Thrones and, of course, the first five books of, of Song of Ice and Fire. But I do think it is a thematic dovetailing as opposed to a, a narrative and plot one, and I think it makes a lot of sense for their ends not to come at the behest of each other, but rather to come from... That makes for a better and more complete and fulfilling set of books that we all will enjoy for years and years to come. Yep, Varys and Littlefinger are like, you know, they're parts of the DNA, the double helix. They're chasing each other up, but they're not they're not meeting. They're not crossing paths. Yes. They're just kind of, they're, they're constantly uh, being compared and contrasted with each other. And that begins right from this chapter. And, and to for me, that kind of concludes my thoughts on Catalan 4, is you, you couldn't ask for a better launching pad than this. Absolutely, man. Yeah, that's, it's a great chapter that launches us plot-wise into the thick of things in a Game of Thrones, and we are going to be picking up with that next week. So thank you all very much for listening to us, and thank you for our patrons for supporting us financially, and we appreciate the likes, reviews, we appreciate all the iTunes reviews. I've seen a few more that have popped in over the last few weeks, and uh, we appreciate them very, very much. Absolutely. Be sure to rate and review us wherever we come up on iTunes, like Jeff said. You can find us on Podbean and SoundCloud as well. Uh, social media-wise, we're at NotAcastASOIIF on Twitter. You can also reach us by email at NotAcastASOIIF at gmail.com. Our Patreon, like we already mentioned, is patreon.com forward slash NotAcastASOIIF. Personally speaking, you can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at my main blog at PortQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Icenfire.wordpress.com. So thanks again for everyone for listening. Join us next time for Jon Snow. We get to head north to the north to the wall to find Jon Snow not as a noble character, but a fucking bully who's going to be at the wall with Tyrion is going to get some hard lessons, but good lessons at the behest of some unlikely characters. Come a Game of Thrones, John 3. A bastard and a bully. I can't wait. Yeah, me neither. So, again, thanks for listening, and we will see you all next time. Take care, folks. So, in contrast to some of the previous episodes, we wanted to thank our Patreons. So, our Lord's Commander, Lord Hayden J., Lord Timothy W., and Lord Mark N. And then our Kingsguard patrons, including Sir Dean W., Sir Milady Spank My Tater. Sir Philip T, Sir Milady Heitner, uh, Sir Milady Captain Dusty Farts, Sir nice. Peter F, Sir Miramets, Sir Patrick D, and then our Sworn Swords: Sir Nathan C, Sir Connor B, Sir Joseph B, Sir Tom M, Sir Jose Y, Sir Darren S, Sir Nelson, Sir Andrew B, Lady Bree B, Sir My Lady Casey D, Lady B Word. Sir Derek H, Sir Josh, Sir Andrew B, Sir Lachlan O, Sir Chris H, Sir Dean B, Sir Andrew M, Lady Yvonne, Lady Melanie L, Sir James R, Sir Milady Wideman, Sir Colin M, Sir Stephen R, Sir Jason P, Lady Amy H, Lady Vanessa C, Sir Junklord, Sir Adam A, Lady Rachel R, Sir Adam L, Sir Clint W, Sir Dan Z, Lady Fanny, Lady Catriona P, Lady Emma S, 
Sir Chris K, Sir Eli M, Lady June C, Sir, my lady, Suki, Sir Rob L, Sir Alex Zane, Sir Travis M, Sir Keith J, Sir Matt L, Lady Joyce S, Lady M Joyce, Lady Emily A, Sir Mangu the Mage, Sir Corey H, Lady Aaron, Lady Courtney S, Sir, my lady, Gib, Sir Andre N, Old Sadie, and Sir Manu. And then our poor fellows patrons, including Sir Michael G, Lady Adriana B, Sir Patrick Y, Sir Aaron P, Sir Milady Chris Claus, Lady Roxanne C, Sir Milady, General Counsel to the Iron Bank, Sir First Name Last Name, Sir Michael G and Lady Adrienne G, Sir Ryan I, Sir Nicholas E, Sir Calvin, Sir Devin G, Sir Samuel F, Sir Milady Alderan L, Sir Michael T, Lady Liz F, Sir Tim S, uh, Lady Patricia J, Sir Chris, uh, Sir Milady Dunk the Lunk, Sir John H, Sir Sam K, Lady Lauren, Sir Yasser Y, Lady Rebecca B, Sir Robert B, uh, Sir Chad C, Lord Brandon Brewer of, Cla- of Castle Blackroom, Sir Justin W, uh, Sir MF and Moonboy, Sir Thomas C, Sir Grant P, Sir Ian C, Lady Mimi, uh, Sir Eric E, Sir Seth, Sir John R, Sir Tim D, Lady Amy K, uh, Sir Milady LMC, uh, Sir Stormfius, Lady Allison M, Sir Brandon B, Sir Ty W, Sir Ian M, Sir Brian, Sir Aaron A, Sir Simon A, Sir Stephen J, uh, Princess Leah, uh, Sir Alexander W, Sir Jed S, Sir David B, Lady Monica M, Sir Cassidy D, Sir Pascal M, uh, Sir Milady FP, uh, Sir Brandon S, Lady Rebecca L, Sir Roger the Night Cook, Sir Eric R, Sir Daniel R, Sir Mark M, Sir Chris, Sir Mendogus J, Sir Omri or Henry M, uh, Sir Arlo B, Sir Michael M, Sir Tower John, Sir Jerry, Sir Jeremy T, Sir Patrick B, Sir Andrew B, Lady Iris F, Sir Ryan G, Sir Chase K, Sir Grayson H, Sir Chris M, Sir Mike S, Sir Louis A, Sir Milady Bedlam Games, uh, Lady Leslie C, Lady Lee C, Lady Kimberly J, Sir Eric C, Sir Cody L, Sir Ben T, Lady Katie O, Sir Thousand, One Thousand Eyes and One, Sir Joseph P, uh, Lady Laurel A, Lady Laura L, Sir David G, Sir Ben, Sir TJW, Lady Red Ramira Ravenhorn of Skagos, Sir Connor M, Sir Mubarak M, Sir Matthew W, Sir Tim S, Lady Yvonne S, Sir Joseph G, Sir Christopher V, Sir Edward H, Sir Rene W, Sir Oscar R, Sir Chris D, Sir Rasmus B, Sir Kevin C, Sir, Sir Milady Rogan W, Lady Jojo D, Lady Sarah L, Sir Will C, Sir Brett A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Ian L, Sir Oliver S, Lady Randy H, Lady Amy D, Lady Jennifer W, Sir Gregor M, Sir John R, Lady Mercedine, Lady Beth B, 
Sir Milady Siren 9, Lady Lori, Sir Philip T, Sir Jacob H, Sir Ryan, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Yavi M, Sir Johanny S, Sir Patrick 84, Sir Nikolai H, Sir Jesse H, Sir Andrew Z, uh, Sir Milady A. Sully 8018, Sir Alan C, Sir Milady Russian Machine Never Breaks, Sir Matija D, uh, Sir Evan, Sir Clay S, uh, Sir Milady Casey M, Sir Steve M, Sir Fifth Horsbane, Sir Stephen B, Lady Rita Unbound, Sir Joshua M, Sir Taylor O, Sir Tom F, Sir Ewan S, Sir Andrew G, Sir Alex A, Sir Paul R, Sir Michael D, Sir Ray of Light, Sir Mark W, Sir Milady Lone Stark State, Sir Gary M, Sir Adam M, Sir Peter M, Sir Joseph S, Sir Milady MJA, Sir Jordan R, Sir Mike S, Sir Choner, uh, Sir Ozion G, Sir Andrew P, Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Patrick B, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D, Sir Milady J Bite, uh, Sir Sh uh, Lady Charlotte B, Lady Jennifer M, Sir Tim W, Sir Biffy Clegane, Sir Mary R, Sir Nicholas M, Lady Datura D, Sir Tom W, Sir Kyle D, Sir Matt M, Lady Catherine, Sir Raymond K, Lady Stephanie H, Lady Lena S, Sir Scott R, Lady Chiara, Lady Heather R, Lady Catherine A, Sir Andrew M, uh, Lady B Swing, uh, Sir Rain F, Lady Alexandra M, Sir Johan P, Sir Andrew S, Sir David K, Lady Bonnie, Sir Scott C, Lady Lucy S, Sir Craig M, Sir Michael DK, Sir Robert H, Lady Evelyn S, Lady Rachel A, uh, Sir, J Sir Fitter, uh, Lady Sanrixian, Sir Derek O, Sir Cyrus M, Lady Dalice L, Lady Erica P, Lady Ephemerata, and Lady Christine H. And then our sparrows, Sir and Milady Radio Westeros, Sir Lucifer Means Lightbringer, Sir Lady Purple Kitty, Sir Colin VW, Sir Joel D, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Sir Nathan A, Sir Frank A, Sir Alex H, Lady Maddie S, Lady Steph B, Sir Gerardo B, Sir Mark L, Sir Tom, Lady Tenfacy, Sir Gary G, Lady Francisca H, Sir Timothy U, Sir Lucas K, Sir Robert M, Lady Lola P, Sir Jason M, Sir, my lady. Pills, Lady Lyrae, Sir Kurt S, Lady Sarah L, Lady Sarah M, Sir Ryan N, Lady Sabrina S, Lady Laura H, Sir Thomas W, Sir, my lady, Kathy S, Sir and my lady, History of Westeros, Sir Sam B, Lady Stephanie E, Sir Josh B, and Lady Louise M. Thank you all very, very much for your kind contributions, and we appreciate each and every one of you. We are extremely flattered by your support, guys, and we hope to continue being worthy of it in the future. Absolutely. The Not A Cast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you all next week.